What's up, everyone? This is Shrogam, and I want to welcome you to a new year and to episode 25 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. Today, we'll be hearing from Chris, aka the real cannabis Chris, the man behind the Mandalorian melts. And man, it's a cool one because Chris is such a nice, genuine dude. He's been around cannabis a large part of his life. He has a great vibe, a unique story. So definitely stay tuned for that. As always, thank you to all the people that make up our community on Patreon. Last year was a blast getting to know a lot of you, building relationships with people. And the Hashishin chat has this old school forum feel to it, but specifically about solventless hash. So if you want to check out the chat or additional interviews, check us out at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn or use the link in our instagram bio a big shout out to our main sponsor rosin evolution the best bags in the game who again you can visit at rosinevolution.com or at rosinevolution100 on instagram that's the number 100 one of the first things i look for in a company is a great product which rosin evolution has they make all their bags out of the highest quality nylon possible they're accurate they have the best deal on their precise full mesh wash bags but the customer service is almost just as important because the product may be great but you need to rely on a great group of people to be responsive to your needs to keep all the inventory that you need in stock and to get your gear to you as fast as possible and in this case rosin evolution is backed by genuinely great people which makes it even easier to want to support their small business who also happens to have the best rosin products and the best customer service so visit them at rosinevolution.com for any of your rosin needs and use our savings code the letters thi the number 710 that's thi 710 all together to save an additional five percent on their already great prices shout out to our good homies pele polare your thermal jacketing specialist, visit them at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at pele underscore polare. With a background in hash making, the guys from Pele Polare strive to create the highest quality thermal jacketing systems on the market to provide you a creative yet effective solution to combating condensation while you wash. No matter if you wash in a machine or you hand stir, if you wash in a one gallon or a thousand gallon, Pele Polar has got you covered. Their thermal jacketing systems keep your water cooler for longer without needing to reintroduce ice, which saves you time, saves you money, and stress on your back. And once you're done washing, their Pele freeze dryer door covers will prevent condensation from building up on your freeze dryer door. So if you need help in battling condensation, visit our homies at pelepolareco.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, standing for the Hashish Inn, to save 5% on all their gear. And a warm welcome to our new sponsors, Powers Plates, who you can visit at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com or on Instagram at powersplates. They are the small batch rosin press company. As great growers and hash makers themselves, the guys from Powers Plates know what hash makers need. Every component that makes up their press is of the highest quality. 
So if you want the highest quality press on the high-end rosin plates market, visit PowerPlates at PowerPlates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, to save $75 off their 4x8 presses. And also a warm welcome to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at SixStarSociety.com. That's S-I-X-StarSociety.com or on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. They produce some of the coolest apparel specifically made for the hash community. They have jackets, hoodies, and beanies to keep you warm. They have shirts, joggers, and hats to keep you looking fresh. And they were also cool enough to give us an exclusive saving code. You know it, the letters T-H-I, to save you 5% on all their gear. So if you love hash and you want gear to reflect that, visit the homies Six Star Society at sixstarsociety.com. And again, use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% on all their gear. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm excited to be here in this new year with the man behind the Mandalorian melts, Chris, a.k.a. The Real Cannabis Chris. You can follow him on Instagram at the real cannabis underscore Chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, or on his Etsy shop. His username is Cannabis Chris. Welcome, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Thank you. I'm excited to start off this new year as probably most people are. Yeah. 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 I I don't know that COVID's going away right away. I don't know that just crossing that uh, January 1st marker is going to make everything all better, but it is certainly good to put 2020 behind us and, and hopefully we're getting closer to the end of COVID. For sure. I, I agree. I don't think everything is going to be resolved in this year, but I think there's the hope. Maybe the hope is what people are anticipating that, that this year will be better. Absolutely. Hope's so important to have. For sure. It's been cool, man. I've gotten a chance to talk with you. We talked a couple of weeks ago. We talked a little bit before we started the interview. You know, I think we've had some great conversations. We've talked about a variety of things, about life, about cannabis, about everything, you know? And one of the things that stood out to me in talking to you was that you've mentioned that along the way, you've been able to tell people kind of bits and pieces of your life or, or your story. But, you know, when you're hanging out with people, it's typically kind of short-lived to a certain degree. And that you've thought to yourself that it would be cool to share your story at some point. But at the same time, there's been a little hesitation in in doing that. And so... Can you talk about that a little bit, just in general? Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a cool journey for me, you know, like like so many of us in the industry. I started out somewhere else doing welding, and I thought for sure, you know, I'm going to be an underwater welder. But um, it wasn't long into that career of welding behind a booth in a fabrication shop that I found myself sort of hating my job and wondering is this what God had planned for me? <laughs> and uh, at, out at a reggae festival, I, I was able to go ahead and take some shrooms and sort of reflect on my life at the age of 23 and say, I want something different. And uh, it, was, it was 2004 at the time. 
and dispensaries were popping up across the state of California. This is really the birthplace of legalization, first with medicinal. And and I thought to myself, oh God, wouldn't it be so cool to be in the cannabis industry and, you know, be part of a, a legal system where you could do that and not have to worry about being in trouble. And uh, me and my friend Keely at the time, we decided, you know, when we get back, we're gonna we're gonna try to pursue this. So we we reached out to Berkeley Patients Group, Don Duncan, and he was kind enough to have us into his dispensary down there in Berkeley and give us the tour. And at the time, he was writing a book called the ABCs to the CBCs, Cannabis Buyers Cooperatives, and so he kind of gave us the spiel on that and told us, you know, basically what his book was going to be about and gave us some insight on how to open it and how to file for a seller's permit and a business license within the, the city. So at the age of 23, uh, my friend and I started our first dispensary. We called it the Healing Center. It was at the Cherry Creek Market up in Grass Valley area and just very fortunate to make that pivot at a young age and really never looked back. You know, there's been some different stops along the way, but through that, I was able to, um, to just make that change in life. And, and I'm super grateful for it, you know, not to have to be that nine to five slave doing that welding, breathing those toxic fumes. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. You told me about that. And like you said earlier, you know, you went to school for it, you did it a few years And then I thought it was funny you brought up the trip that you guys took and then the trip within the trip on the shrooms and coming back and opening the THC, you know. But up to that point, I guess, what was your experience with cannabis before the welding? Like, why was it was it already a big part of your life at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Like like uh, so many people, you know, I started in my teen years, so I was freshman in high school. I was like 16 years old and, you know, we started smoking and we would smoke out of water bottles with like, you know, nuts. And we'd even have like Bic pens as the down stem. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was pretty bad. (laughs) Coke cans, you know, I've done the apple, just like all that classic stuff. And, and then by like 17 years old, junior in high school, my friend Kyle and I, we were growing behind his pig pig shed, you know, and his mom caught us and told us, oh, you got to put in these nutrient sticks and, you know, that's how the plants will thrive. So it's cool. She didn't like rip them out or anything. She gave us some pointers and that's just sort of been the way in the hills, you know, where, where I was raised at. It, you know, there's so many people that are doing this type of lifestyle up here. And so it's just kind of a generational thing. And I fell into it pretty young like that. So really started growing about 17. And, um, and then, you know, I would do my little thing in high school, kind of had my little hustle going on. And it's how I'd be able to provide my own smoke for myself. So you know, if I moved like 13 grams to my buddies and I could keep that last gram. And so a lot of times right. I was buying like a, a half zip at a time. And I remember that the strain was called Blue Dragon. But as time goes by, I'm like, I'm pretty damn certain that Blue Dragon was actually Blue Dream. And it was just like 98, 99, you know? 
Yeah, just renamed. Yeah, yeah. Which was great, though, because it was green bud, you know? It was seedless, and it would, it would get you stoned, you know? Blue Dream really does the trick. And it had, at the time, it was, like, new, and it had a great smell and everything, and it was just such a step up because we were all smoking what we would call pretendies. And, you know, it was like that low grade green bud. It's like BC bud or something like that, you know, just wasn't very good. But yeah, so that was sort of the start of smoking and, and growing, you know, is back in high school. Yeah, that's funny that you bring up the blue dream, though, because, you know, now it gets so much flack. But back then, you know, it was actually the best stuff around kind of in a way. Or maybe not. I don't know. But it was decent. I thought it was really good back then. You know, it it hadn't been just so flooded. It wasn't like everybody and their mother had it. You know, there was only this one guy that we could get it from. And so we were just thrilled every time we could get it. Like, it was amazing. And there was another strain that was around here that was starting to pop up at the time. It's called Goo. A lot of people call it Af Goo, but we just called it Goo. And it was so stony and it was so stinky, just macked with trichomes, super greasy weed. And, you know, it would, it would knock you. You'd get so stoned from it every time. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I remember even out here, you know, Afku being out here and, I, you know, who knows if it really was or not. But you and I are in a way kind of contemporaries. I think we discovered we're only about a month apart in age. So it's funny. we. You know, our lives are very different, but parallels in some ways. Yeah, there's a lot of mirroring happening, even from like across the country, like we are very similar experiences. Yeah, no, it's funny. So, but you're originally from Southern California, right? You moved up to Northern California. I don't remember what age you told me that was at. Yeah, yeah, I was raised in in Southern California till I was 12. And that's when we moved up to Northern California. And I was raised in that little town of Ocean Beach, San Diego. It was like two blocks from the ocean. And I grew up like boogie boarding and skimboarding. And we play a lot of roller hockey down there. And it was good times. I, I absolutely loved San Diego. And I always wanted to get back there, you know, kind of a dream. Yeah, and you were telling me like each kind of place has their vibe down in San Diego. Yeah, it's really cool like that. There's so many different little towns. You know, you have La Jolla, you have Pacific Beach, you have Mission Beach, you have Ocean Beach, you have Coronado and Imperial. And those are just the beach towns. And each one of those beach towns has its own unique vibe. Like Pacific Beach has a real college vibe going on. La Jolla is a bit uppity and it's still real cool. There's great surf spots and everything and, you know, wind and seas right there and Black's Beach and um, you even have like Torrey Pines is right there, you know, and so you have like, it's, it's pretty cool. And then Mission Beach is, it's, um, it's like the tourist trap, you know, it's got the roller coaster, it has the boardwalk, but right. it's a lot of fun, you know. And there's all kinds of great food spots just littered along the coastline. I mean, everywhere you go has somewhere really tasty to eat. And then uh, Ocean Beach uniquely was like this small little hippie town. It's kind of isolated by itself on this peninsula. And it's got just such a good vibe, you know? Yeah, for sure. I've 
not very familiar with San Diego. I think I've been to La Jolla, but yeah, it seems like a cool place. Um, it actually doesn't seem that big, but you were saying it's surprisingly pretty populated. Yeah. Yeah. They have these rules to where the buildings can't get very tall. So I think the most you're looking at is like a three-story building. So the, the, you know, the roof line is, is fairly low. So you can see out to the ocean from everywhere and it goes right into a hillside. You have like three blocks of like flat land, maybe four blocks of flat land. And then it goes right up into this hillside on this peninsula. And so everybody's able to sort of look over the ocean and yeah, it's, it's real neat. Yeah, that's cool, man. One of the things that kind of stood out to me about your early life is, you know, even though, as you mentioned earlier, you didn't start smoking cannabis until a little later, almost like high school. Uh, your dad was smoking it, but it was in this very unique way where he, you know, didn't smoke during the day, during the workday. He came home, he had dinner, and then he lighted that joint after dinner in the house. And that was kind of your first exposure to it. Do you think that that impacted the rest of your life in a way? Yeah, it certainly did. It's, it's so funny. You know, I, I remember those times vividly. I, I can see the house that we lived in in Ocean Beach right now. And we lived on the second level. And, and I can remember, you know, after, after dinner pops, like you said, he'd go and spark up that joint, you know, he, he'd always roll his own and, and it was, you know, we're, we're talking like the 80s, you know, in, in the early 90s. So the house would fill up with smoke and you could see that blanket in the house, that layer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I can remember the smell so well, you know. And yeah, it, it was funny because back then, you know, just being raised, you know, with like the D.A.R.E. programs around and everything like that. I was like, oh, that stuff's bad, you know? And so right. I didn't, I did not like it, you know? And I can remember one time we were out at Glamis Sand Dunes in Southern California and my mom like never smoked, but she took like a puff and I happened to catch her do it. And I was just <laughs> so upset about it. <laughs> and then, you know, it was yeah, a handful of years later and I had reached my teen years and I was starting to experiment. Yeah, and then you realize you actually liked it and it wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, but I loved it. And and the tables turned. All of a sudden, you know, I was raiding Pop's little tin every now and again. And and then one day I'd be able to bring him a little bit. And shoot, I can remember I was like 16 years old. We we went up to Tahoe and my dad was taking me and my best friend Nick and my sister snowmobiling. We we're gonna rent them and, and go on this like little hill hill trail um and we on our way there my sister she's a couple years older she's like dad can we go back to the hotel i forgot something he's like what she's like we wanted to get stoned before we go (laughs) and he's (laughs) like well it just so happens i've got this green joint right here so he pulled out his little joint and he sparked it and handed it to my sister and she handed it to my friend and he handed it to me and i went and handed it back to my dad and that was my first time getting high with my dad. And it was just surreal. Like, is this happening right now? We got all stoned and we rode snowmobiles around Tahoe. And it was epic, man. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And that that probably is a super cool experience to be able to share that with your dad like that, especially for the first time. And, and he was the pro who actually already had the joint ready to go while you guys were, you know, sleeping, leaving it at the hotel. 
Yeah. Yeah. He always kept one in his cigarette pack. And if there wasn't a full joint, there was at least a roach, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's pivot a little, Chris. Let's talk about BHO. You know, BHO is something that usually comes up when I talk to people that have been in the game for a while. And it's usually something that kind of gets skimmed over. But you were telling me a little bit about your history with it. And I thought it was intriguing. So let's start there. You know, where was your first introduction to BHO? I want to say it was like 2002, 2003. And I hadn't yet gotten my doctor's note, but my neighbor had it. And he was making his trips down and he would go to like the OCBC, Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative. He'd go to like Berkeley Patients Group and he'd come back with these tins, these like blue dot and red dot tins, you know, of cannabis. And every now and again, he'd bring back a gram of this BHO. But I don't even think it was being called BHO back then. I don't, we, we didn't really know how they were making it. In fact, it was just called Buddha's Earwax. Okay. And Buddha's earwax was made by NorCali and is spelt with a K. And they're just like a cooperative or a collective group of people that were putting out these real high-end products in the Bay Area and the different dispensaries down there would carry their stuff. So they were a cooperative, but they didn't have, you know, a dispensary location to go to. They just provided to the dispensaries. And Back then, that stuff used to cost 120 bucks a gram. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, because people trip on, on prices now and everything like that. Like, I, you know, I heard Blue River talking some of his numbers and stuff. I'm like, shit, back then, you know, almost 20 years ago, stuff was costing 120 bucks a gram. So, right. Um, yeah, and it was just this super nice BHO that was like, had this like honeycomb type of texture. And even though it was called Buddha's earwax, it was more of like this honeycomb. I wouldn't call it a crumble um, or like a true like uh, wax or an oil. It was like this in-between state. You know, I had these little pot pot holes in it and it was just really neat looking. So um, that was, that was where it started. And you told me you thought that these guys kind of were on their vacuum game very early on later, like now thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, I'm thinking, gosh, they were probably doing some like sort of like a vacuum setup and purging it and everything. And um, nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody knew that tech. They were the only people in the entire Bay area that were doing it. So like, if you wanted something that looked like that, that was that quality, you had to buy the NorCali Buddha earwax. They were the only ones. And so, yeah, they had that corner on the market. They had that tech and, and then I think things really grew from there and, and eventually it turned into shatter and all those different products. But back then nobody knew what they were doing, you know? It, tur- it was like more of like oil were the other products that you could get. And so I think a lot of that other stuff was like open blasting and then cooking it down in that pot of water was how people were purging it. So they, they were doing that tech way early on and, and everybody else was just clueless to it. Yeah, we were laughing about the, the Pyrex and the quote unquote purging with the hot water underneath it and how most of that stuff looked a little sludgy, let's call it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I participated in that myself too, you know, like so many others. And right. Yeah. I had like, I think it was like 2004 to five ish. I had started working for Capital Wellness Collective and there were these vendors that were coming by and they were putting out that, you know, what a lot of people would call like poop soup or, or just, it, it was an oil, you know? Right. And, um, and they had offered to let me come over to their place. So, you know, we were in like the, the back streets of Sacramento area with this garage door open and <laughs> we had this big old Pyrex bowl and another bowl beneath it with some hot water in it. And we would just open blast right into it is how I was originally trained, you know, and that's just how it was done. You just sit there and cook it off and you'd watch it turn from like a gold to a darker and darker and darker. But once it stopped bubbling was when it would stop crackling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just didn't know better, you know, and we, we knew that we wanted something that would get you stoned to the bone and would, you know, knock you in the head a little bit. So that was the way to do it. And we were using that honeybee extractor, that little plastic tube, you know, that was the original tech. Yeah, I think Nika T brought that up, that you could kind of buy it out of the back of high times or something at the time. Yeah, I think I got it from honeybeeextractor.com, if I remember right. I think I bought it from them directly. And they would have these different colored plastic tubes that you could buy, like a, like a pink swirl or like a green swirled one. And Right. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that really was funny to me is that, you know, talking about these BHO consistencies was to almost try to mimic that Buddha's earwax. You guys came up with this mirror tech and you were blasting on elongated mirrors, it sounds like, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I remember my buddy had actually told me to do this. and they, He had actually come up with two ideas and it was like game was being spilt and they were within real small groups, you know, and one of them was to blast directly into water, like hot water itself straight into it. And that would get the uh, butane out of it quicker. And then the other one was to get these real long mirrors, like a full body mirror that, you know, you'd stand and check your fit out in. And so we put that out on the on the grass field, you know, and the sun would be beaming down. So it'd be like right in the middle of the day and we'd just shoot and we'd go from one end all the way to the other and then do another lap back and another lap back and sort of like this zigzag, like snake pattern. We'd go up and down that glass. And then by the time you'd made like three passes, you could go back to that top end of the glass and go back all the way up that side and then back down and the butane would be gone. And it, and through that, it would be like this more like dry, like sh not shatter, but like um, almost like fluffy consistency. And like, so yeah, it, it was really unique. It was definitely a different consistency at that point. And so, yeah, that was pre-vacuum too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm intrigued, like you, you keep talking about the goldness and especially about that Buddha's earwax or even in the Pyrex stick dish going from gold to dark while they kind of cooked off the BHO in essence. Were people using bud at the time or were they quote unquote nug runs? Okay. It would be mixed. Sometimes you could get somebody's like lowers and they would, they would call it their pilf and they would be down with like giving you like huge bag. Like back then people would just throw their trim away. 
so you would get like a huge trash bag of it, like a 40 gallon trash bag sometimes of like pilth. And then other times you just get trimmed. So it was kind of like victim of the circumstance or you just rolled with whatever you got. But I never did whole plant extractions back then. It was always like the lower pilthy buds or the trim. Right. And, and definitely the pilth would come out a little bit better, you know? But I just think with the way things were back then with like ticket numbers and everything, there was no way that we were going to blast our top nugs. <laughs> right. Yeah. You were, you were telling me about the kind of fluctuation of the market throughout the years. And at some points it was very high. So like you said, it just wouldn't make sense really. Yeah. Yeah. Being like close to the Sacramento area, we were putting out a lot of perps and back, it was like perps and goo and train wreck. And, and of course, Blue Dream was, was there too, but those strains were going for like 36 back then, you know? And so it just made sense to, to trim those and put those packs out and people love that perps. I mean, it sold like hotcakes. It was just, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think, sell any, but yeah, that's what people <laughs> were getting for it back then. Right. <laughs> Do you think that purpose it was more like the exoticness of the buds being darker, or was that in combination with it also being pretty trichome laced? Yeah, I mean, when I think about it, I feel like it was didn't have the trichome content the goo had, or the blue dream, or even the train wreck, or like Romulan or any of those like classic strains. It just didn't but it had really unique terpenes. And we weren't on that terpene game back then. We weren't like, oh, the terps on this, the terps on it. But we were saying the smell and taste, you know, the flavor. And people just loved the way that the perps tasted and smelled. You crack it, it had this really unique smell. It was just super euphoric. And it had some of those like lavender style terps that were coming out of it. And it would just, it was very relaxing in that anti-stress weed. So I think that's why people liked it so much is it would just make them feel like really relaxed and really good. It was like, um, it was uplifting, but relaxing at the same time, you know? So it was, it was super popular. Yeah, I bet. And you know, that's one of the things about you that I've noticed um, from following you is that you do put out, a lot of varieties you know the strains you guys are running it just seems like it's kind of never ending everybody has a new flavor all the time and you told me that came from being involved in the dispensary world and and learning about the marketability of having variety so can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah i think you you really nailed it right there it was just that's the that's what worked best for the patients is they like to see, you know, at least 30 strains. I can remember at Cloud9 in San Diego, we would have, that was like our goal is to always have at least 31 flavors, you know, and we would kind of tout that, oh, 31 flavors, you know. Right. And it's not that somebody's going to pick up all 31 flavors, but it's that ability to choose the different kinds, you know. And so I've kind of always kept that with me, you know, whether I was providing for the dispensary itself down in San Diego or, um, 
or the different stops along the way was always about having a variety of strains. So we never just stuck with like one thing. We weren't monocropping. And then as I started to step into the hash and rosin game, I'm like, oh, well, definitely, you know, people are going to want that variety still. So I, I started realizing that, you know, there's so many good seed breeders out here. And it's not that I, I don't need to buy like particular cuts. Well, cuts are great and everything, but um, it's about, for me, it was about buying as many different flavored packs from all the different breeders. So while I like to buy from like Harry Palms, Bloom Seed Co., I also like to buy from Midwest Best and Y East and Archive. And so I'll just, I'll go all around. I don't stick with like any one guy, uh, Tiki Madman, you know, and I'll pick up from all these different people so that I can have a variety of these different things. And like, Currently, right at this minute, I have 50 plus different flavors. I think I have like 52 different flavors. And there's a couple that we're getting ready to trim off. So, you know, that's that's also the beauty of being able to work with so many different kinds is you get to really start selecting the ones that are true winners. And we find that out from not just like what we personally like, but the feedback from the different people, the public itself. You know, they're like, oh, I love the Raspberry Bellini or I love the Flow White number seven or whatever, you know, the banana pound cake. And they'll, they'll let you know. And when you keep hearing it from so many different people, you're like, oh my gosh, those were the killer winners, you know? So, and then, you know, you have some ones that, that may be dumped for you, but they just, you're not getting that great of a response with. And through that, you can start to weed those out. So yeah, I like to run like as just as many as possible. And that way I can have that diversity for people. And so you mentioned the Raspberry Bellini. I've seen, you know, people post that. What were some of the other winners of 2020, if you had to say for you? Uh, yeah, there, there are so many. Um, yeah, like I said, the banana pound cake people are just absolutely loving. And then uh, I got from this this man up in Oregon. He goes by the name Kind as Fuck online, and <laughs> okay. not too many people have heard of him. You know, he has a really kind of a small following, but he's just a really nice, genuine man. And he's done some breeding himself, and he crossed the straw guava with the straw nana, and then crossed the straw guava with the straw nana with the papaya, and he gave me both sets of those seeds and. Both of those came out just super fire and he didn't have a name for them. So I've just kind of honored it at this point and called it straw nana across the straw guava and straw nana across the straw guava cross with papaya. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those were, those were some of the winners too, for sure. That's cool, man. And it's cool to hear because, you know, from doing the interviews for a while now and also kind of being in touch with the people that listen and, and the community and the people who are out there doing this on their own. Is there always wondering where the next kind of new genetics are going to come from? And, you know, of course you mentioned some of the bigger names or some of the names that are more associated with producing high quality solventless resin. 
you know, if you can call it that, but there are a bunch of other people just doing their own thing here and there, working on small projects. And those may be some of the best things around that people just don't know about. Absolutely. Yeah, like I think Tiki Madman, he's he's starting to blow up this year, you know, but he's kind of lesser known in that world. And and that was certainly one of the the winners of 2022 was his Chop Nana. We also did his space runs and his watermelon rain and his pirate cake. And so we did a bunch of strains from him, but the, the winner of all of them was the Chop Nana from his stable. And um and so he's kind of one of the lesser known guys that, that put out some really nice stuff. And, and, and I mentioned Midwest Best earlier too. I don't really know anybody working Midwest Best gear, but they came out with that Raspberry Bellini. And then they also came out with a three-way cross. It was a Raspberry Bellini crossed with lemon sorbetto crossed with watermelon Skittles. And that was another winner too. Um, we pheno hunted that last year, but the plants were so small and there was just a couple of them because we're really just trying to get a jar test out of it that, you know, it's maybe like 15 grams came out. So barely anybody got to try it, but it was definitely a winner. And so I think it's kind of nice to be able to get those packs from those guys and hunt that because then you're kind of going off the beaten trail into into the unknown areas and then you're getting genetics that a lot of people don't have. And, um, again, yeah, I haven't seen anybody working that gear. And so that's been, that's been great for us, you know, cause we're having some more exclusive stuff at that point in time for sure. and, um, and supporting kind of the littler guys too, cause they can breed well, they know exactly what they're doing. They're not just pollen chucking and they just don't have the following. Right. It has to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You got to give them a chance. You got to test their stuff out and see what it's all about. But, and then, yeah, we'll work the bigger guys too. Like the, the banana pound cake came from in-house genetics, you know, and, um, but I haven't seen anybody with the banana pound cake either. And I'm kind of shocked because they're super well known and, um, and it came out really nice. It's got a lot of flavor to it. So. I'm thankful that I got a taste of that and it was a funky profile, man. You know, I don't want to say that it's like reminiscent of the GMO, but it does have like this funkiness that's similar, but different than something like a GMO. I agree. And what's really cool too is like, I think a lot of times people bite into the name too hard and it's unfortunate, you know, but it just is what it is. And they've got to almost hear the hype before they jump into it. But like the banana pound cake doesn't taste like pound cake and it doesn't taste like banana OG. It's its own beast, you know, and it's unique as fuck. It's just, it's amazing. And same with like that Trop Nana by Tiki, that Tropicana banana, forgive me. He, corrected me the other day he's like it's tropicana banana not trop nana (laughs) (laughs) but uh it does not taste like tropicana and it doesn't really have much banana flavor either so it's banana punch is what it's crossed with and it's it's got this like tropical fruit mix 
but it's definitely not citrusy and it's not really banana-y. It's almost like a mango, papaya, pineapple, but it's not like, it's not citrusy enough to be a pineapple. It's really hard to put your finger on it. Again, it's just like this mix of like fruitiness, you know, and it's fire and it does the trick, you know, it really rings your bell. So yeah, there's yeah. Some, there's some amazing stuff out there if you give these guys a chance and, and you know, you don't always have to work with like the most popular guy. Although they do put out really good stuff, you know, like right. Harry Palms Bloom Seed Co. I mean, there's a reason that everybody buys all his packs up. It's because they're fucking winners. I mean, he's crossing strains that wash with other strains that wash and it's all a lot of it's all the gear that he's created. Or right. maybe a little bit, you know, from other guys, maybe a little Canarado stuff mixed in or something like that. But you're pretty much going to get a winner when you run his gear. So, and then the other, you know, the other stuff that's out there, you might run a whole 10 pack and only find like one Fino that even washes. And then it might be like a three and a half percent or something like that. So they're not as promised as, you know, like Bloom Seed Co. But it's still nice to to try all those out and get that diversity going and, and be able to bring to the public some of these things that, that are out there and available because so many people are just copying each other these days. You know, it's like, oh, I went to his page and I saw that papaya cake washes. So I want papaya cake or, you know, I want papaya or it's just everybody seems to be following each other and copying each other. So it's kind of nice to step out from that a little bit and, and try to find something new and unique to bring to, to the community. I agree. And I would say just on a personal level, like it would be exciting for me to find something new, you know, and be able to share that with others. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, One of my friends is obsolete. He goes by wizard of obs online and he gave me quite a few cuts to test last year and they were really little plants. So we really did just get the jar test out of them and there's not even enough to put out at all. But, um, one of the ones that he gave me, it's, it's something that he loves. It's like near and dear to his heart and mine too. And, And I think just a ton of people it's UK cheese. And it's the original, the real UK cheese. And it washes at like three and a half-ish percent. It's kind of hard to tell out of the jar test. You know, we didn't dry it and weigh it, but we have kind of our standards. We know what they look like when it's a five percenter. We know what the GMO at an eight percenter looks like in the jar. So we're like, it's around a three percenter. But the terps came through on it. It smells like the UK cheese. And so I'm really looking forward to putting out some of obsolete skier next year. Yeah, that's cool. I'm a fan of cheese, that funky old cheese. I know a lot of people aren't really, but yeah, I couldn't even imagine that in like hash form probably would be pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been around forever and I think nobody's running it, at least that I've seen, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of a fun thing too, is to step back into the old, old school genetics and see what washes from that pool and, and, and what works well as hash. And, you know, sometimes you just got to put it out and then wait for the response and see how the community likes it or doesn't. Yeah, it's true, man. You kept bringing this up. Let's talk about the jar tick a little. So when we talked the first time, 
the way it sounded to me was like, you guys are just growing all these seeds. And then I was like, are you guys just washing all of it? Even if you're getting the half percenters and the one percenters. And you said that at, for a little while you did that, but then I think maybe you heard Ken Wall, maybe even on here talking about the jar tech and you guys started using that. But specifically what I found cool is something that you just brought up is that in essence, you take the same amount of every stream, like weight wise. So you have that baseline. And then the other baseline is that you take your winners, your GMOs or whatever else is dumping, you know, six plus percent and looking at those and having that be your visual baseline to be able to compare other strains to. So when you see something that's going to do one or two percent, you know what that looks like visually. Yeah, absolutely. It did. It came from from your podcast. You know, it, there's a ton of information. If you listen to all the different people, you know, everybody's spitting out like little nuggets here and there. And none of us are trying to to give everybody a complete roadmap on exactly how to do it. You know, we want you to get out there and discover things for yourselves too. And, you know, it'll grow your brain like that and your confidence and everything to figure some things out on your own. But there's certainly a ton of tips to be had from your podcast. And, and Ken Wall um, spilt some game, you know, he's like, Hey, these jar tests, you know, they work and this is how you do it. You know, you put some in there with some ice and rattle that thing around for a little bit. And, so we started doing that and, and just to keep the um, pictures consistent with each other, we'll run one fresh frozen ounce, which is really not that much. It's quite a small bit. But at that point in time, you know, we don't have to grow these like five pound plants. You know, we can grow littler plants and test it out. And all we've got to be able to do is get another cut off of that so that we save those genetics. So we usually like to take like two cuts from each plant just in case, you know, something happens to that first tray. Right. But uh, yeah, we'll give it that jar test and, and shake it up and let it settle and then snap a picture of the bottom of it and add it to the catalog. And so we've got this like database now of all these different strains, you know, and we can refer back to them or, you know, share it with a buddy that, you know, wants that info or whatever. and. Um, it's a, it's a little bit of a bird walk, but just to kind of touch on some other stuff was like Ken Wall had shared, you know, that he was doing those bigger washes, you know, out of the cans and stuff like that. And so we were like trying to, trying to emulate that a little bit. And I don't want to be like braggadocious or anything, but it, it was fucking great. I mean, out of two blue barrels we can wash twenty eight thousand grams with yeah, one man and then we strain into one collection reservoir so one barrel gets washed the other barrel gets washed and you just go back and forth and back and forth and i think you probably saw earlier this year i was doing some posts with like these trays that would have like you know over 300 grams of gmo or over 300 grams of sour garlic cookies or yeah, 300 plus like grams of resin huh? yeah it looks like yeah. mountains of resin yeah oh dude it's 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 th- it's so cool like watching this much come out i mean it's like it's it's a ton of fun you're like holy shit look at all this <laughs> and it's all like 
121st wash, you know, like it's just huge. And we're doing short washes. We're talking about five minutes hand mixed with that whisker, that tech that came from rosin. Uh, um, oh shoot. What's the name that the people that make the bags, yeah, they sponsor your show. Rosin evolution. Rosin evolution. Duh. <laughs> no, they're great. But he, and he's been so kind to me along the way. He's given me all kinds of steps and he's given me prototype tools for like flower pressing and shit like that. Th- those guys are great. Best customer service in the game. They're awesome. Yeah, I use I their, their wash bags. You know, I love that full mesh. It actually drains. And by the way, if you're doing 28,000 gram washes and you're pulling out like, you know, a thousand grams total, like from the first wash on, you're going to need full mesh you know, the mesh that just barely goes up the side with like the ice extract bags, which those bags are beautiful and great too, but it's just not enough flow. I mean, shit gets clogged up and you're going to be working your back super hard trying to get that to drain. So yeah, shit, I kind of lost my train of thought where I was going with that, but you're good, man. I think, you know, it's just the, the big trays like that are, are a ton of fun to do. And, and it's nice to be able to do big washes like that. And, you know, tip of the cap for Ken to Ken Wall for figuring that out and, and sharing that with us, you know, that there are ways to go bigger um, with a small setup and still keep it craft. So, you know, we switched from having a bunch of bubble magic machines, you know, to going down to like hand washing with that whisker, the tech that came from Rosin Evolution and um, doing these huge washes now and we're getting bigger, better, cleaner yields and doing it old, old world by hand. So, yeah, I was going to ask, how has it affected your yields? I, I don't want to say that we're getting more yield, you know, because I think you can get it all out of the machines, too. I just I think you can do a lot more out of these the cans, you know, and to me, I, I really appreciate and value something that's done old world. And by that, I mean doing things by hand and not automated. And I know that all these companies are gearing up towards putting out these big stainless steel machines with these spinners in there. They want, they want you know, your $50,000 and whatever their prices are, you know, I'm not quoting anything exactly. I'm just kind of throwing numbers out there, but I don't think you got to spend all that crazy money and invest like that. And, and I think that you can do something at a real high level and a real clean level and keep that um, old world feel to it. And it might even be more of a valuable thing doing it by hand, you know, it's like, yeah, that's when I cool make- to hear. because in honesty, yeah. I mean, people that are producers might be able to afford some of this gear, but people that are, People home growing or, or doing it by themselves, you know, likely the resources are going to just be enough to set up a simple setup. Yeah. So what do you do with the material that is not producing in water? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't be the happiest to hear it, but occasionally I'll dry it and I'll give it to the team. You know, I'll give it to my dad and I'll give it to my friends. Um, I give it to my buddy who sponsors me, uh, biodiversity with the nutrients. So it usually becomes gifts at that point in time, you know, just like to, to spread a, a nice clean product out 
And uh, sometimes if I think it's like just really, really nice and I still want to see it in like a concentrate, I'll, I'll shoot it over to my buddy and I'll ask him to extract it, you know, BHO style. And he, he makes some really nice diamonds or some, um, some sugar or something like that or a batter. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit and it's generally out of curiosity that I asked. There's no judgment here. It's just, it's interesting to me that, you know, I think you called your style of growing biodiverse. I know you're very keen on being pesticide free uh, organic, whatever that means, you know, and, but at the same time, part of the hash game is going through these genetics and they're not all going to be winners. Right. And so my question was to you, you're taking so much care, so much pride, uh, such good intention into your resin. And then some of it is being put into the BHO form. And part of what you told me is that even though it's not where your heart is at, you feel that there's a place for it. So could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah. Yeah. It's not where my heart's at. You know, I, I'm really, obviously, like you were saying, I'm, I'm into the organic living soil. Uh, I like to do beds and create this really nice um, microbial zone where everything's reproducing and, um, and yeah, we put a lot of care into it. And then, I don't really like to shoot it out to the BHO guys. A lot of times I will end up just drying it and gifting it out, you know, but it is a way to get these unique terp profiles out into an extract. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to bash anybody who is smoking flour, but you know, like my dad, he's had throat cancer and lung cancer. And I know many people being in the dispensary scene for so long who've had like mouth cancer and these different cancers. And um, just to shoot it straight, it's like, I don't, I don't even think it's, I don't want to be too strong here, but I don't think it's debatable that the plant matter itself, the flower has carcinogens in it and that's coming from the carbon the tar so the the trichomes are what house the cannabinoids and the resin and that's where the medicine's at you know it's the unique cannabinoid profile and it's not the plant matter itself the woody grassy leafy plant matter doesn't have medicine that's where the medicine's growing out of but that's not the medicine itself. And that type of stuff is carcinogenic. And that tar, I mean, I can remember all the bong loads, you know, and all that black lung butter coughing it up in the shower and spitting those nasty loogies out and seeing the little black speckles in it. Like that's not good, you know? And that's why I believe in concentrates. And, you know, it's like, you don't need to take a huge glob. Like if you're a lightweight, take a little pinhead, you know, you, you just, but still at that point in time, think how little you're smoking and you're not getting the tar and you're getting just as high as you would have if you smoked a whole joint. And so I think it's, we're getting to that point where we're trying to just create a concentrate, a refined product that's removed from 
the tar and that carbon. And so while I'm not big on that BHO or any type of solvent um, extract, you know, uh, CO2, any of that stuff isn't like my forte, but I feel like it does have a place, you know, and, and I know that with testing policies and everything that people are able to verify that it's really, there's such a minuscule amount of residual like butane left in these products. The, the, the guys are doing a really great job of cleaning things up and, one of the bigger people that you can see doing that is, is 710. You know, they clearly have a passion for the solvent, solvent list game, but they're putting out some solvent products too. And that's just because there's some really beautiful strains out there that won't extract into the solvent list product. You can't put it out in melt. You can't put it out in rosin, but it's still so nice that, well, shoot, let's go ahead and do a BHO with it. Let's, put it into a sugar or a batter or some diamonds. And so that's, it's kind of the place for it, you know, is it's, it's a way to still put out a concentrate that's free from that tar. And I think that just that little bit of, of butane that's in there, that small amount of parts per million is significantly less damage to your body and your brain. And even potentially your spirit, if you want to take it that far, than the tar would be. You know, so that's just right. how I feel about it. You know, I'm not trying to knock people that are into their joints or into their backwoods or, you know, they're smoking their donuts. You know, it's like, do what you do. I'm just, that's my perspective. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I think another good point that you brought up last time is the affordability. You know, not everybody can afford solventless all the time. And so that's another area. And, you know, above all, I think is providing clean material, right? So even if it is BHO, it's coming from something that has been cared for and it doesn't have any funky stuff on it that it shouldn't to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Growing it the way that we're doing organic and pesticide free in that living soil, it's going to have real high terp levels like it should. And it's, you know, it's, it will have been grown organically. It is being um, extracted with a solvent, but it's not going to have concentrated levels of pesticides, which is a big time concern. And that's, that's why we try to grow with what I like to call is growing with heart. You know, you care about what you're doing and it's not just about the numbers for you, you know, it's like you're putting that love into it. And when you do that, you know, you can, you can say, Hey, you know, even though this is being put into a concentrated and and solvent extracted, it's not going to be concentrated pesticides. You know, I'm not poisoning the public with this. Right. Right. Well, awesome, man. I think this is a good point for us to take a smoke break. You go with that? Absolutely. Again, a warm welcome to Powers Plates, who I am extremely excited to be working with. You can visit them at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com or on their Instagram at Powers Plates. I got to meet the guys behind Powers Plates at the Ego Clash. And outside of being really down to earth, they were super passionate about their gear I got to see the press in person and it was really nice. It's super sleek and I love their gold bars look, but they are going to be dropping more colors this year. It's already available in black. And as many of the top hash makers who are using their gear will tell you, 
you can feel the difference in person. The Eagle Clash is likely the coolest hash event in the world because it's the best of the best competing and the winner gets a set of power plates, which to me speaks for itself. And like many of you, I'm inclined to prefer small batch production. Powers Plates is the small batch rosin press company. These guys are still personally assembling their presses in their garage in Portland, Oregon. They test each and every unit before shipping them to you. All their gear is made in the USA. Every detail about their press is the highest quality possible because they take pride in it and because their press was designed when rosin presses weren't even a thing. So they've had time to polish the design and the guys behind the plates are great growers. They're great hash makers. So they know what other hash makers need, like making it standard to finish all their platens in anodized food grade coating, making them easier to clean up, but also helping the efficiency of an even heat transfer. Their pro springs eliminate plate twisting. They house all their electronics in a sweet Pelican case, which not only allows you to work in your cold room if you choose, but also have a really nice and sturdy way to take your plates on the go. So if you're in the market for a rosin press and you want your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press, then go to powersplates.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI standing for the hashish in to save $75 off their four by eight press. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk about THC, the healing center. You know, you mentioned it a little earlier. You decided to open it at a pretty young age. You were like 23, I think you told me, right? Yeah. And that was kind of a topsy-turvy story. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah, we just kind of hit it brief. You know, it was uh, we were the first dispensary in Grass Valley in Nevada County, Northern California. and. Um, we had filled out all the paperwork properly. We were licensed by the state and the city as well. So we had our seller's permit and our business license. And um, we had filed for like art and literature and medicinal herbs. And, and so we kind of just put it in there like that. And I think they were thinking as like the healing center were more like, you know, like a lot of art and like, you know, whatever, like medicinal mushrooms and shit like that, you know, maybe some like, Nog Champa incense and who knows, you know, but they didn't pick up on the medicinal herbs as like cannabis. And we were open for about three months, you know, and I think that they just felt very offended, you know, by the way that we kind of got in there. And so I think they were looking for anything they could to, to stop us. And they, we were approached by like county officials and a sheriff and, Basically, they they said that we were in violation of our use permit because of the zoning guidelines, you know. And at that point in time, they asked us to shut down, and you know, we were we were just young young adults, and we were pretty intimidated, so we complied. And my partner and she she took off, and kind of left me to deal with it, you know. And so I, I was scrambling in my brain like how can I save this thing you know I I don't want to go back to welding and this is so cool I was just so pumped to do it I just thought it was the raddest thing ever to be able to do this like as my career path and care for people and it was just so neat to me and at the same time um Ricky Williams the football player 
was going through a transitional phase in his life. You know, he had been caught, you know, with cannabis in his system again, you know, another failed drug test. He had decided to walk away from football, like in the prime of his career. So he had moved to the town of Grass Valley and, you know, all this stuff was on ESPN Sports Center, like night after night. And, you know, everybody was just blown away that he walked away from football. And I decided to reach out to him and see if we could make something happen where maybe he could fund the dispensary to, to get rescheduled, you know, for its zoning or um, rezoned. And so he agreed to meet with me and we, you know, we took a walk for like, you know, four hours or so. And we brought our kids out on the walk, his son, Prince and my daughter, Trinity. And it was, it was really neat. You know, it was, it was cool to bond with him and, and share with him, you know, my vision. And he had some real great ideas too. And we decided to go and seek out some guidance from the man himself, Bill Panzer, who was the main co-author of Prop 215. So there's, there's several authors, but he's the guy who, who did the bulk of the writing of that bill. And uh, Bill is down in Oakland. And so it was cool. You know, Ricky drove us in his Hummer down to Oakland. We got to take a trip together and he brought a bunch of this mango weed and he had me rolling joints the whole way. And we got so <laughs> incredibly stunned. It was like joint after joint, you know, and people are driving by on the highway, like waving at him and stuff. It was it was pretty surreal. You know, he's definitely a superstar. We went and met with Bill and, and Bill Panzer is, is an amazing, loving, caring, compassionate human being. And it was very fitting that he uh, had written the Compassionate Use Act of 1996, which is really where all this started from. Like all of this, you know, started with this grassroots effort right there in the Bay. Without him writing that bill in 1996, we wouldn't have all these different things happening in all these different states. The recreational that we have now, it looks like we're gearing up towards national legalization and even possibly international. And all that starts way back then in, you know, 94, 95, 96. And so it was great. We got to go meet up with him, you know, and, and he gave us some guidance and some counseling on it and told us how we could file to get it rezoned. and that he would support us on our quest to do so. And at the time, Ricky was uh, in court and he was fighting for his signing bonus. It was like $8 million. And if he won the case, then he wouldn't have to go back and play football and he could keep the money and he could invest in the dispensary. And if not, he was going to have to pay back that money. Unfortunately, he lost the case and uh, he ended up choosing to go back and play football. He ended up having a really great career, bounced around, and you know, he got busted again and went and played in Canada for a while and came back again. <laughs> obviously, he's living that cannabis life. You know, he, he loves that that medicine just like so many of us. And but because that that happened like that, uh, we did not ever reopen the healing center. When we closed up, the writing was on the wall. Ricky had to go back and, and play some football and, and pay back that $8.6 million. I was reaching out, you know, and, and trying to find a way to stay in the industry. And uh, Dale Geringer had, you know, Dale Geringer from Can Normal, California Normal um, National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws. Uh, he had suggested that I went to an MCA meeting 
and that's a marijuana caregivers association. They're down in the Oakland area and it's, you know, all the different dispensaries in that area would meet over at the OCBC, Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, which was the first dispensary ever in the state of California. And um, they did like the patient ID center and stuff like that. So everybody get their ID cards from them. And at that meeting, I was fortunate enough to meet Amanda Whitmore and she had just started Capital Wellness Collective. And she had offered me a job down in Sacramento, which I graciously took. And I became her front desk employee, like doing whatever, you know, from making patient cards, you know, and laminating and cutting them out, registering patients and calling their doctor. Um, I did a little bit of bud tending and we did a ton of, of activism and that was great, you know, so. Yeah, that's cool, man. Your story has kind of a, a zigzaggy vibe to me since we talked last time, you know, it's like you've, you've done a lot of different things within cannabis and, but you've also kind of gone with the flow, you know, and, and just trying to find your way. And, and sometimes like I know with Capital Wellness, when you took that job, even though you were happy about it, you know, you were driving, I think you said two to three hours and basically making minimum wage and, you know, was it worth it? And you said absolutely because of the experiences and, uh, you know, like you said, some of the grassroots and activism that, that you really learned there. But I wanted to backtrack a little and talk a little bit more about Ricky Williams because, uh, you know, you mentioned meeting him, but you didn't tell us a story about how exactly you got to talk to Ricky at first. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I, 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 I suppose I pulled a, a tricky one, a fast one. You know, I had, uh, <laughs> I had reached out to the Ricky Williams Foundation for Children or Foundation for Kids, something along those lines. And, and I sent an email and said, oh, hey, you know, I, I'd love to donate 10000 to this, you know, but I'm going to need to speak with Ricky and, uh, and confirm where the money's going. And uh, just the very next day, I got a phone call and, and it was Ricky. And he, he, I could hear it in his <laughs> voice. It was him. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to use the money for this and this. And I'm like, oh, you know, this is really why I was calling. You know, I've got this dispensary and this is what happened, you know. And while we were chatting, he, you know, he was real open to it. You know, he was listening to me and he was very kind and um, he had heard my daughter playing in the background and I could hear his son and stuff. And so we discovered we had children right around the same age. I think they were like two and three at the time, just little guys, you know? And so, yeah, we had decided that we'd go ahead and meet up at the local disc golf course and spend a little time walking around in these real tall pine trees and just get out in nature and let the kids play. And, and he could get a, a little bit better vibe for it in person. So that's, that's how it opened up. Yeah, that's funny. I, I thought that was hilarious that <clears throat> that's how you got to talk to Ricky. But at the <laughs> same time, you know, what's interesting to me is nowadays, especially, it seems like branding with celebrities or, or being with a celebrity uh, is something that's going to eventually and is happening with cannabis, right? But you told me, and you kind of hinted at it a little earlier, but 
you told me that Ricky was actually like a really good dude. And you guys had some experiences, for example, where, you know, you'd go and to a dispensary or, or to talk to someone and he'd get a ton of gifts. And, you know, one time he got a volcano, which at the time was kind of like the top of the line, you know, vaping device and probably still is, but he didn't even actually like keep it to himself. And you found that out like at a later point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on our way back from seeing Bill Panzer, uh, we stopped at the Berkeley patients group and you know, the, the community there was, it's so nice that they'd have like comedy acts and stuff like that going on and they're real patient services oriented. So there was a comedian there and she was cracking jokes about Ricky getting a Hummer in his Hummer and, uh, (laughs) you know, yeah, it was just, it was silly stuff, you know, but um, Jeff Jones came over from the OCBC and, you know, I believe Don Duncan had invited him over. And so, you know, before you knew it, there was a group of, of real uh, prominent dispensary owners that were like kind of surrounding Ricky and everybody was really, you know, just pleased to see him and showering him with gifts. So, you know, he had, a table full of edibles in front of him and all these different grams to try. And then, you know, the, the big prize that they had given him was this volcano vaporizer, which at the time, you know, it was like a $500 vaporizer. And, um, and I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, with like nothing in front of me. And I'm like, Hey, I brought this guy. Where's all my, You're like, where's guy? my gear? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> No, it was, it was just really cool. You know, I, I think that's what he had earned is being, you know, a leader and stuff like that is, you know, you get, those are some of the perks when you do something at real high level, people respect and appreciate what you can do. And it's their way to sort of connect with you is to give you some things. And right. Um, so, yeah, it was like two weeks later when we had gotten back, I'm like, how do you like that volcano, man? And he's like, oh, I never used it. And I'm like, what'd you do with it? And he's like, well, I know this woman in Nevada City who had a bit of a condition going on and uh, like a lung or something like that condition. And so I, I ended up giving it to her. And that to me really exemplified who Ricky was. Just a really kind, compassionate man, you know. He was really considerate of others. And he, I think he knew right away what he was going to do with that volcano. It wasn't for him. It was going to be for somebody else. So, yeah, he, he seems to be a really good dude. And I, I always appreciated that small window of time that I had with him, you know. I was able to uh, to sit with him at his house a couple different times. And he'd play his little guitar. He wasn't the best guitar player, but <laughs> it, was, it was just neat kind of being in his presence. and he was able to meet so many people so quickly when he was up here, you know, everybody wanted to to talk to him and he had met some real old school growers at the time. And they were from this place we call the Ridge, you know, North San Juan. And he had been told about um, getting the microbes from underneath bamboo trees, you know? So he had been sharing that with me that if you could get, you know, the soil from by these bamboo trees, that those microbes are going to make your plants thrive and stuff. And 
that was really the first time that I think I had even been introduced to like microbes and like these living things in the soil. Like, you know, I was only like 23 at the time and it just, I didn't know about it yet. So that was really the start of, of anything living in the soil. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that we talked about again, relating back to our age and and being kind of similar is that we talked about the idea that in our age group, and this is not everybody, but I think a a general uh, way of thinking was sterile environments and going from sterile to, I think what you called maybe microbial rich environments now has been something that's trending it seems like to me you know and obviously you've got your thing going on so talk to me a little bit about your growing style and and how that's evolved over time from being given grow sticks by your friend's mom behind the pig's barn you know (laughs) yeah yeah so you know, yeah, as the years went by, like you said, it was about doing things real sterile. You know, I, I did all those different grows um, from like rock wool cubes to hydrogen, you know, the bucket systems. And I've done um, a lot of that synthetic growing. So it's like Sensi Bloom A and B, you know, from Advanced Nutrients. And then um, at times I did like the Lucas formula with general hydroponics. They have like the grow micro bloom, but you cut out the grow and you just use the micro and the bloom. And, and um, I've done the connoisseur from advanced nutrients. And so uh, in the beginning, it was really about trying to grow like the biggest plants that I could and trying to keep everything real sterile and pristine and in the, you know, when I was doing like the hydro rooms with like the bucket systems or the rock wall, I used to be able to walk into these rooms with like socks on, you know, it'd just be spotless in there. And it was pretty good stuff. You know, everything looked real nice and chunky, good trichome content and everything. But um, there wasn't any organic growing right then. And <clears throat> as time went by, we started getting involved in a little more and more organic growing. And first it was like, oh, we'll do some live teas. And if we're going to do live teas, then how are we going to do synthetics? Because those will kill the microbiology. And I just, I happened to be plugged into the pipeline enough to where I could get a question out to Elaine Ingham, who's really like the pioneer of the food soil web. And she was able to say that if we could add some like humic acid, which has like humic, fulvic and omic acids to the um, nutrient solution that it would help to chelate those nutrients enough and soften them up enough. And if we used them at a low enough parts per million, like around 800 parts per million, that it wouldn't kill the microbiology. So at a certain point, it was like this hybrid growing of like synthetics with live teas and, you know, trying to add things into that nutrient solution to make it real close to fully organic, you know, adding seaweed, adding fish hydrolysate, but still not being fully organic. And as time went by, you know, we just left that whole synthetic thing off to the side and started going fully organic. And that was great. And I'm super thankful for that shift. 
You mentioned the T's, and this is something I really wanted to dive in with you because you hear a lot about T's and live T's. What is, let's just start with what is a live T? And what function does it have? Yeah, so there's a lot of different people, a lot of people are calling um, everything live T. And they, it's possible that they're doing different styles, at least from my perspective, because you can grow like a nitrogen, you know, live tea that's more of like to feed the plants with high nitrogen than it is um, to do like a compost tea, right? So like they're using like guanos that are nitrogen rich or they're using um, guanos that are phosphorus rich. And those are, those are more like a guano tea, but because they're brewing it, it's still, you know, it's activating, you know, the biology in there. So technically it's going to be a live tea, but that's different than doing a um, compost live tea. So with the compost live tea, your focus is on, creating as much micro microbiology uh, as you can with the bacteria, protozoa, fungi, and nematodes. So those are what are at the real high levels. That's what's proliferating in that live tea instead of like a nitrogen. And that's going to come from having your uh, culture with like a five-part wood culture. You could have like pine, oak, redwood, some like walnut and even almond. And you'll have like wood chips that would have been inoculated with a tea themselves. And, you know, those wood chips will get um, stored in like a shady area, usually under like wet cardboard so they can stay nice and moist. After about like two weeks, those wood chips are going to be just covered in like white fungus. And that's great. That's where your, your high fungal content is going to come from. And then you have your worm casting. So you're getting a bunch of bacteria from your worm castings. And then you have a compost as well. And you could have like a Hawaiian fruit-based compost, or you could have like an Alaskan humus compost, or you could have both. And so you mix all those different parts together and you brew it in a, in a brewer, a live tea brewer, and you're pumping in oxygen through this thing and you're getting, you know, after like a day of brewing, you're getting like dissolved oxygen levels of like 5.6 and stuff like that, where eventually you'll go through like the first like 18 hours, you're going to see these crazy blooms, like super high levels of bacteria and the super high levels of fungi and then everything balances out. And after about 24 hours of brewing, that live tea is stable and it's ready to be used for the plants. And so that's the type of live tea that, that I prefer to use is, uh, is a compost live tea. And um, that's what we'll inoculate the soil with. And from there, you know, everybody's got their own take on it, how they want to do it. But the way that I've been gearing up towards, especially over the last couple of years, is that we've discovered that if you continue to inoculate that medium week after week after week, you're putting in real high levels from that live tea that's not stable in the root zone. So there's not enough crab and there's not enough fish and there's not enough seaweed to support the population of microbiology that you're continuing to re-inoculate that medium with. 
And so you'll have these microbial swings in the soil itself week after week after week if you keep adding those live teas. So what we've discovered is that if you inoculate the medium like once in veg, maybe twice in veg, just to really get a good base of microbes going in there, and then once again in bloom, that's ideal. And instead of adding a new live tea each week, what you do is you're feeding that the microbes in the soil each week. So instead, you're adding more fish hydrolysate to the soil. You're adding more Ascophyllum nodesum, which is Norwegian sea kelp. You're adding more crab meal. You're, you know, those are the different things that you're adding to feed the biological inputs. You know, or those are the bi- biological inputs that you're feeding to feed the microbes. And I think that, you know, it's a, it creates a more stable root zone and the plants seem to love it. And so that's kind of what we've steered towards over the last couple of years. And I know a lot of people are still doing live teas every week and it's to each his own. I'm not going to say that they're doing it wrong or anything like that, but that's the, the techniques that we've geared up towards. Yeah, so that was a lot. And in a way, I kind of want to summarize it almost like in layman's term. So you're basically feeding the soil less or putting less teas in it. You used to do it more often. And now you've figured out that by feeding it less, but at the same time, giving it these other elements while the soil, let's say, kind of rests from being fed, it allows the soil and the microbes in the soil to then intake these, I'm assuming, like top dressings that you're putting on there. Is that how you're feeding or giving them these supplemental, I don't know what you call them. Yeah, yeah. So it's like we're, we're just adding that live tea like once or twice, you know, like once in veg and then once in bloom, sometimes twice in veg. And then we're feeding the biology in the soil every week with liquid fish hydrolysate and also uh, Norwegian sea kelp and also crab meal. And we can do liquid feedings of those and also humic acid, diatomic humic acid. And so by adding those um, organic inputs, we're able to get the biology to reproduce in the soil at a stable rate. It's the food source for the biology. And so the biology is thriving, you know, it's, it's teeming with microbes as the book refers to, you know, right. so everything's very robust in there and it's very stable and it's not going through these swings if it's being, you know, if live tea is being reintroduced each week, you're just leaving it up to the microbes to do their thing. You know, they have that real unique relationship with uh, macro and micronutrients and the plant itself, you know, and that's something that's like, passed up on when you're using synthetic nutrients when you're growing with salts and stuff like that there's not the relationship that the plant has with the microbiology so like in that root zone you'll have these fungal hypha that are like going nuts all over there and they're acting like they're acting like roots themselves they actually, if you were to, to take a picture of it, they would look like roots. It, so essentially your root ball can be like double, triple, or even it could be even larger. Like in a bed, you could have fungal hypha running from one end of the bed to the other. We're talking like hundred foot long beds, you know, 
that are like five feet wide. And these fungal hypha, they, they, again, they connect to the root zone and they help uptake water and nutrients and feed it directly to the roots. So they're, they're an extension of the plant at that point in time. And what the microbiology is doing in there is they're sequestering the macro and micronutrients. So like, imagine like a worm, like wrapping itself around like a piece of phosphorus or a piece of nitrogen or a piece of, you know, whatever, the different components in the soil. And it's going to, that biology is going to chelate that macro or micronutrient and then it's going to store it and, and it's going to be bioavailable and ready for the plant to uptake when the plant wants it. And the plant's going to release exudates and peptides depending on what phase it's at in its growth cycle. And so it'll say, hey, you know, we're ready for this or we're ready for that. And then the fungal hypha in the biology is going to release that to the root zone and give the plant what it wants when it wants it. So it's a much more natural way to grow. And that relationship is missing when you're growing with salts because usually the salts are like chelated and ready for the plant to uptake. So there's no exchange of like peptides and exudates from the plant to the microbiology. And it's thought, you know, by um, some of the people who are pioneering and leading the food soil web is that that relationship between the plant and the microbiology is what's driving the higher terpene levels when you're doing these living soil grows. And because that's really one of the only thing that's missing from like the salt to the, to the living soil. And so um, we don't know for a fact, but that's what's hypothesized. And you see people like the soil doctor talking about it. And, you know, Elaine Ingham talks about it. And some of these pioneers, these people that have worked for the different colleges and taught these courses. And they're really, they're, they're um, spreading this information around the world. They go and work with like indigenous tribes and teach them how to compost and grow food properly. And they're rebuilding the topsoil like all across the world. And, you know, these are, these are stewards of the soil. And, and that's what they believe is the difference, you know, and why these plants are coming out more terpene rich. Yeah, that's my other question is, have you seen the benefits in the resin? Yeah, I believe I have. Uh, it, this one's like a touchy one for me because I don't, I don't want to offend anybody ever, you know. I don't like telling people that my way is better than their way and or I don't want to say that I'm right and they're wrong you know because it's it's a to each his own you know if you're doing salt growing and you love it then that's great you know I just I like what I'm doing and and I feel like there's a difference to be had in, in the terp levels you know and a lot of the resin that is coming out of the grows that, that we're doing are real are real terpene rich and it, they're creating really greasy melts, you know, and, um, and that's from a slew of things, you know, some, some terpenes create are greasier melt and some are more stable regardless of the growing method. But, um, I feel like if the plant can be terpene rich, it's coming out extra loud, you know, from these, from these organic practices, these living soil practices. 
And I've had some people grow the same strains as me. My friend recently just brought some of the garlic cocktail over and it just did not have the same nose as the stuff that we had grown. And the difference was that his was in, inside under lights and it was grown with salt. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say that it was grown wrong, but whatever, that's just some of the differences that I'm noticing, you know, and, and right. others have pointed it out too. When they get the product, they're like, Oh yeah, gosh, that's so loud. Like the terps on this are, are amazing, you know? So. Which is funny because you told me the story about getting the breeder's cut of the cookies and cream, which I'm going to ask you to tell <laughs> and how you and Ozzy aren't on necessarily the same page about it being the same cut since he's so familiar with it as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I haven't done this with Ozzy because I, I respect him so much. I'm so grateful to even be able to know him and communicate with him and be under his tutelage. He's absolutely amazing. There's a reason that they call him the Michael Jordan of hash. And it's because he's, he's the goat. (laughs) He has done a ton of work with the cookies and cream 13. You know, he's informed me, he's, he's provided me with so much information. So it's, it's really hard for me to even say this because again, I have not aired it out with him that, you know, that I just disagree. And essentially what that is, is that, I have a cookies and cream and I was, it was gifted to me by my friend GR. And he told me that it was the cookie. It was exotic Mike's breeders cut. And he is connected to a lot of the different breeders and he's connected to some seed banks as well. And so he has access to these breeders cuts and he has never let me down with anything. I, I just, believe wholeheartedly that he's not lying to me because he's not a liar and that he knows where he got his cut from. And he says that it's the cookies and cream breeders cut from exotic Mike. And, um, so I, have grown it here in my unique Terra Noir. And, um, we have this situation where it's living soil it's organic it's pesticide free and i'm in a valley so i'm real low light and i i wouldn't say it's full shade grown but it's pretty dang close to being like a shade grown type of situation like the buds aren't getting big they're not getting super dense or anything like that and i think because of the unique situation in the growing techniques it's able to create this really terp rich flavorful product and i'm often told by the public that it tastes like the strawberry milkshake you know of cookies and cream and i remember when ozzy had first gotten it from me last year we did our collab with it and he said that you know it had like this fruity grapey strawberry type of a flavor and he thought it was possibly a grape fino uh, or a a strawberry fino of the cookies and cream, you know? So he just 
he was certain that it wasn't the 13 because he had worked with the 13 so many times and it just didn't have that type of a Turk profile. So in that sense, I think that we're disagreeing, you know, because I believe that I have that cut and that it was just grown differently in this unique situation with the, you know, real low light, practically shade grown and organic and living soil. And I think that's what, you know, similar to like coffee that's grown, shade grown. Um, these, these are considered to have like the richest of flavors in the world. And so while you don't get that yield that you would, if you were like at the top of a hillside, you know, it's, it's creating a, a terpier product. And so that's, that's something that I believe is, is very real. And so, yeah. Him and I are just going to have to agree to disagree, but I haven't really challenged him with it. You know, I haven't been like, no, I disagree with you. I just kind of let it be because I, again, I respect him so much. and I'm just so grateful to, to even communicate with him. Yeah. Ozzy is a great guy, man. Uh, I'll agree with that. And I totally didn't mean to put you on the spot with that, but I just found it interesting that the growing conditions could possibly affect genetics so much that somebody who's so familiar with it just doesn't see it even as being the same genetics. And, you know, a kind of side question is for people that may not know that much about cannabis. What is a breeder's cut? A breeder's cut is that the particular breeder that made that set of genetics, they crossed, you know, in this case, Starfighter with the form cut of Girl Scout cookie. Or later on, it was the undisclosed Girl Scout cookie, right? Because there's like a couple versions of the cookies and cream. That would be their cut that they usually keep real, real close. I mean, they might let a couple people have it, but it's what they like to breed with, you know? So they continue to use it to make all their different crosses. And so it's, it's going to be very rare that anybody has those type of cuts. Right. Well, cool, man. I think this is a good chance for us to take a second smoke break. All right. I want to take this opportunity to thank each person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 25 with the real cannabis Chris and to give an extra special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Lord Zippers, Sunday Melts in Connecticut, Mystic Hand Melts, Alec in Los Angeles, the homie International, LeBron Terps, Deal Grows, CB, the conventional dabber, Mikey from MTS Farms, Gen Doe 420, the boys on the Big Island pressing for show, Haji, aka Solventless Terps, Manchu Gardens in Denver, Terp Wizard in Michigan, the homie Rackhams, Hannah and Adam from Mission Hill Melts in Massachusetts. David from Totem Solventless in California, Arlie from Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, Mario in Illinois, James the Casual Cultivator, Nate aka Side of Mids, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Daniel in Connecticut, and Kevin the Ruler of Lifted in Dina. I thank each and every one of you. Without you, the podcast would not be possible. I hope you continue to enjoy the episode. All right, Chris, let's talk about grassroots. Let's talk about activism. We talked a little bit about Capital Wellness Center. You told the story about how you met the owner. You got in early. You really helped 
basically their whole initial start takeoff. But we didn't really talk about the fact that you said that you learned a lot about activism, a lot about patient first mentality. So can you expand upon that? Absolutely. Yeah. At Capital Wellness Collective, it was founded by two women. You know, they're, they're amazing. Amanda Whitmore and Andre Especial. And they both came from Americans for Safe Access before they opened the dispensary. So they were in that grassroots activism thing. It was, it was really their base from where they started from. And they brought that to the dispensary. So similar to like a Berkeley Patients Group or an OCBC, Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, they had that um, set up where each day would be a class, a way to give back to the patients, you know, and make it more than just a place to pick up your medicine. So, you know, they would have like grow classes and cooking classes and they would have activists come in or like pioneers from the industry, you know? So I can remember gentlemen like Eddie Lepp coming in or like Jack Hare coming in and, um, and spending, you know, like the entire day there. And, and we had another man, uh, he goes by the name of Hemp Seth. It, he was, he was there all the time. And, it was just such a blessing that, you know, I had that opportunity to work there and learn, you know, from all these different people um, about how we were healing people and what the plant could do for society and for us as a whole. And in some of the ways to sort of get the word out there and fight for the movement. So, you know, we were doing these banner drops. We would paint these banners that would say like prop 215 is patients are our patients rights in california and we'd have like a big um marijuana leaf with like a cross on it you know like a red cross and these would be like big hemp banners we're talking like eight feet long by like four feet tall and we'd go out to like watt avenue in sacramento which is like under the 80 you know it's like four lane highway right there and we'd, we'd go onto the overpass and we'd zip tie these banners, you know, and hang them over the highway. So all the cars would be coming by, they'd be like honking at us and stuff. And there'd be these huge banners, you know, that would talk about Prop 215 and stuff. And so we did some like, we did some like kind of hardcore like activism stuff, you know, and it was, it was very special to be part of that. And um, we would go to like, like the Health and Human Services building in downtown Sacramento. And we would set up a table and, you know, we'd have our little chairs and these um, sign-up sheets. And we try to gather signatures to reschedule cannabis. This is like 2004, 2005. And while we never gathered enough signatures, we were out there playing our part, you know, and there's supposed to be like a bunch of dispensaries doing it. But I think a lot of people would fall short. And so we just never gathered enough signatures. But so that would be like some of the activism work, you know, and we'd go to these rallies at like the state's Capitol building and we'd get up there with like microphones and tell the stories and, you know, Jack Hare would come out and he'd tell everybody how cannabis was going to save the world and, you know, what hemp could do and 
Um, you know, I can remember Eddie Lepp being there too. And he'd bring these big old posters with like some of the flowers from his garden and him and Jack would sign these posters and, and sell them. And they try to generate cash for the movement, you know, and it was really, it was really a great thing. And so I'm just really grateful for that step along the way. Cause that's where I learned a lot of that grassroots activism and shoot. I can remember one time there was this day where we had Jack hair in and just for whatever reason, the patients didn't respond to that on the calendar of events that we had. And like very, very few people came to the, to the collective that day. And I was able to sit in the activity center with Jack for a bulk of the day. And he had this like coloring book, you know, and <laughs> It was really neat. It's like all the different phases of being high, like phase one, phase two, you know? And so he drew me like a picture is like of me with my glasses. And it was neat. You know, he like, he drew a little picture of me, you know, with crayons and stuff and wrote a little message in there. And um, this is post stroke. So it was, it was a bit more of a challenge for him to, to chat and stuff, but it was just such a, an honor to be able to sit with him and, and and be in his presence, you know, and there were a lot of other things too. We would do these like volcano vaporization classes. <laughs> we'd have people come in and they'd go up to the volcano room and we'd sit down and show them how to grind their herb and put it in there. And we'd teach them how to use the vaporizer and stuff. And it was, it was a really special place. I'm really grateful for my time there. Yeah. Capital that's really cool. Collective. Yeah. And currently, uh, I'm pretty sure they're still open. Montel is one of the members now, one of the board members. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and do you feel like that experience and that kind of mentality has carried over into your work now? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always knew that I wanted to have my own dispensary again. And so uh, from there, I was always trying to like gear up towards getting into my own dispensary. It led me into growing again at a much bigger level. And eventually through that, I was able to, through the growing, I was able to open cloud nine that was down in San Diego. And it was in that hometown that I grew up in that same town of ocean beach. And it was cool. We were two blocks from the ocean, you know, it was like the same cross street that I grew up on just a couple blocks down and Seedless uh, was around the corner, Seedless Clothing Company and shout out to Shay and that whole crew. Those guys are amazing. And um, yeah, at Cloud9, we implemented the patient services first mentality. And so we had that whole calendar of events and we would do grow classes and cooking classes and we did yoga classes. And um, for the people who are physically capable, we did surf classes. You know, part of healing is getting out into that sunshine, getting into the water. You know, you experience grounding from being in the water, just like you do from standing on the grass with shoes off. So um, yeah, we did a ton of different things. We did like beach cleanups, you know, and like cleaned up the trash and stuff like that. And yeah, that patient services first mentality always carried on. You know, we, we rented out a location to have our activity center to do all these different patient services and it never made any money. It just cost money to run that. 
And it was like a no brainer. Like we had to have that too. You know, even if we weren't doing the greatest, we made sure that we had that activity center open and ready for all the patients to go and enjoy. And it was, you know, it was always filled with people and they're working that volcano vaporizer and stuff, just like I learned at Capital Wellness Collective. So yeah, that, that definitely transcended and yeah, very grateful for that time. Yeah, that's cool. And then is that where BHO kind of popped his head up again and something happened in San Diego when they shut all the dispensaries down or something? Yeah, yeah. BHO was around back then, you know. We didn't do that much BHO through Cloud9, very little, you know. But a lot of the dispensaries had it around. You know, there was BHO was everywhere, it was proliferating. Something we did do back then was we would put out our own like signature products. We would do like Cloud9 Kush and Ghost Kush and Platinum Kush. So we would do our own grows, you know, and, and they were indoor hydroponic. They were that hydrogen style growing, you know, bucket systems. And, and we would put out our own concentrates too. So like we did something we would call five-in-one indica or five-in-one sativa. And uh, we had this like bubble magic, like five-gallon machine, right? And across the street from Cloud9 was OB Water. And they had this really nice RO water and this ice machine you could buy ice out of. And so we'd buy the RO water, we'd buy the ice and everything. And I taught the, um, the employees how to work the machine and we would drain it into a trash can with, you know, the big set of bags. <laughs> and <laughs> it was cool because we would just run one strain to the next and we just keep reloading that wash bag in the bubble magic, you know, and then drain it into the big set of bags. And, you know, we'd go through like five different strains. So we'd call it a five-in-one indica, cloud nine, five-in-one indica. And we never gave it, you know, any other unique name than that. But yeah, that's, that's also where like the start for us, you know, like 2009, 2010 of like mixing different strains together started. And people loved our hash. You know, we had some really nice bubble hash back then. It was a bit darker, you know, it oxidized and everything, but it was, it was fire. Yeah, that's funny. So was that some of your earliest experience with bubble hash or water hash or solventless or whatever you want to call it? It started a little bit before that. It was back in 2007, you know, in between cloud nine and the end of Capital Wellness Collective, I had a stop at Hometown Hydroponics. And that's where I learned how to grow. And that's where I learned how to make the live tea. You know, I was making two 300 gallon batches of live tea each week so like 600 gallons of live tea and the community around here that this area of grass valley where i was at um they just love that whole live tea thing so we were selling it you know just tons and tons of this tea and i picked up uh, that's where i first got my first set ever from west coast growers And, you know, they were like the only people around that were taking that risk, if you will, of selling bubble bags, you know, and that's what they were, you know, bubble bags. So I had the big set. I want to say it was like a 35 gallon set, you know, and I run it with this paint mixer, this Milwaukee, like industrial looking drill. It was huge, dude. It was like (laughs) four foot long, like paint mixer, with this big old paddle on the end and 
I remember thinking that that was like such the better way because I had like seen these images of like Eddie Lepp doing it up at Lepp Farms within a big barrel as well. And he would do it with like an oar. And I remember thinking, oh God, I got this paint mixer. Like we're so on it. We're using our technology, you know, or whatever, you know. (laughs) Right. And we'd sit there and shred it up and we'd pull the bags. And I want to say it was like the 73 bag had that gold in it, you know, and so that's, that was like the start of it. it was like 2007 was doing these, you know, big washes and, and I would carve these like symbols and I would make these blocks, you know, dry it on like cardboard and I'd carve like symbols and like pyramids, like mine pyramids into these blocks of hash. And yeah, I was just like inspired by Mayans. I had heard the 2012 tales and, you know, cool things about them and, so I, I would draw some of the, the imagery that I had seen, you know, into these these hash blocks. <laughs> yeah, you were telling me about that, that we were kind of laughing about it, almost like energy infusing them, you know, after the fact. But then, yeah, it was funny. You were drying on cardboard and the game has come a long way since then. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that we've stepped into like freeze dryers and how, you know, white and blonde we could get it, you know. So, yeah, but that was the start of it. And, you know, and then, and then moving on to cloud nine and, and having the employees do it, you know, they'd sit there and they'd crank it out all day long and like an eight hour shift. And we'd have a huge batch by the end of the day. And again, cardboard dry it and get all nice and oxidized and brown. <laughs> <laughs> but people loved it, right? That's what you said. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It was chewy and melty, you know, it bubbled up really well. We were not putting out full melt, but it it was melty and bubbly, but it was not a full melt, you know? Yeah. And so I'm assuming at that time, people were still like using this as like bowl toppers or like going in a joint or something like that. Yeah, I think predominantly bowl toppers and down in San Diego, the thing was bong loads. So like, you know, you'd put in your snapper, you know, just like a small like. 0.2, 0.3 with a couple little speckles of hash across the top and then you snap that through and yeah, you get lit from that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny, man. But, you know, one of the things that seemed ironic and I told you this when we first spoke is that you started brewing the live teas while working at a hydro store. But that hydro store seemed like a pretty crucial step for you because that's where you went from the dispensary seemed to really seemingly getting more serious about growing or, or figuring out that that's where you should go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, each stop, you know, I'm grateful for, for my, my life because each place has taught me something about the game, you know, um, or about, I, I don't know if I want to call it the industry as much as like the lifestyle. And so, yeah, that's, that's really where I learned how to grow and stepped in fully into the organic scene. So that's also where like the live teas and the synthetic mix started and then eventually going fully organic, you know, all the way hard. And just being in this area, there were so many pioneers that were connected to the food soil web and, and, connected directly to Elaine Ingham. And so we were very fortunate, you know, to be able to learn under those people. And um, yeah, we, you know, we were able to knock out some real big grows, you know, that thing was to do these 200 gallon pots 
And then we would put out these like five to seven pound plants, sometimes, you know, a little bit bigger, but um, not much, you know, seven pounds is really like the peak peak, you know, and you had to have the right strain to do it like that. But we grew a lot of that MK Ultra back then too. And we were putting out like these five pound plants, the MK Ultra, like this, you know, big gardens of it. And through that, there was, I had enough to go start a dispensary again and that's when I, and I couldn't wait, you know, as soon as I could, I shot back down to San Diego and, you know, right up cloud nine. Let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, late nineties, 2000 strains, because you mentioned some last time and it's always nice to talk about them because, you know, in a way they're probably gone or in some other genetics now, but no longer in that form. And you mentioned some funny names like the Mr. T, I think. Yeah. The San Francisco Fog. Yeah. What were some of the stuff out there at the time? Yeah. You know, that that company I mentioned earlier, NorCali with a K, um, they, they were really crushing it back in the day. Not only did they do the Buddha's ear wax, but they put out these jars and everybody was doing like plastic containers back then, you know, and the tin, they had just left those tins with the blue dot on the tin and the red dot on the tin. And so, um, this company, NorCali, they were doing the collective, they were doing, uh, these glass jars and they came out with just these really unique strains like Mr. T and they had the San Francisco fog and there was like, dark side of the fog which was real similar to san francisco fog but it would come out like this black almost like purple color and i think they were kind of going for like dark side of the moon you know dark side of the fog. So they were like neat plays on names and they had another one called like pea soup or they had the abe vagoda you know and um and, and shoot there was, there was other strains out too beyond that company. They had a bunch more. I, I wish I could remember them all right this second, but those are the ones that are coming to mind. And um, I remember some of the other strains, of course, like everybody remembers like Sensi Star was real popular and Snowcap was real popular. And of course, Trainwreck and Romulan and AK, you know, and um, gosh, what else was, was doing it? I, I think that's like the bulk of them that were that were really crushing it back then. I I'm probably skipping over some. I, I mentioned the goo earlier in Blue Dream as well, but those were all stables that you'd see again and again in in the late '90s and early 2000s. By like the mid to late 2000s, the OGs had took over, and there was a ton of OG coming out of the Grass Valley area. And then being down in SoCal, the OGs were, of course, perps were around too, all the different purples, you know, Purple Urkel, Granddaddy Perps, um, Grape Ape, you had all the different perps were just super popular. But then after perps, it was the OGs that took over all the different OG Kushes and Bubba Kush was there too. And, and, you know, down, down in the San Diego area, you'd have like, P91, which was for Poway, class of 91. And you'd have like Hog's Breath. Hog's Breath was super popular down in SoCal. And Bubba Kush was just everywhere. And then, of course, the OGs. And it wasn't just like one OG. 
you had places like downtown Kush Lounge and in San Diego, they'd have well over 50 strains and like 20 of them would be different OGs, you know? <laughs> right. You'd have, you have like the Vader OG, the Yoda OG, you know, you had the Death Star OG, you had all the planetary cuts, you know, it was like the Mars, the Jupiter. I mean, it just went on and on. And then I remember like the pinnacle of it was this one called Larry OG and Larry OG was just the stinkiest of the OGs. It was super fire and people just loved it. I mean, you would think that they wanted all the fruity strains and all that stuff like what exists now, but it wasn't that way. You know, it was like, it was just the gas. They just wanted, you know, Oh, you got a different OG. I want that different one. And they would just stick with just OG to OG. OG. Yeah, it was a different palette, I think. And like you said, I mean, not that some of the fruitiness didn't exist back then, but I guess, you know, it was just like a regional preference, which is always an interesting thing to me. And you told me something kind of funny is that there was like a crew, right? That basically you had to get these OGs from because they were like the only crew that, you know, with that material down there or where you can actually get it from. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that was like these guys coming out of the LA area and they were like the only people that had the planetary cuts. And I think like, if you, if you claimed you had a planetary cut and it didn't come from them, they'd probably find out about it and be upset, you know, because they were the ones running the game and, um, and everybody knew it and everybody picked up from them. And I want to say that they were possibly like Asian mafia type thing, you know? Right. running the game out of the LA area. So all the dispensaries in LA had it, all the dispensaries in San Diego had it. And, and it was a ticket, man. It was coming in, you know, four, four plus all the way up to like 45 at like peak prices. Oh yeah. That's crazy. But, yeah. That's so interesting yeah, just to, far, to always hear kind of the backstories to what's evolving into the cannabis industry, you know? Yes, I wish those OGs would wash because, God, to have that in hash would be just, like, phenomenal. Yeah. You know, you brought up a word that we both uh, laughed at last time, and that's gas. You know, uh, I know the term is very loosely used, if you could say now. What does it mean to you since you brought it up in reference to the OGs? Well, I I think, you know, some people might disagree with me, but... I personally don't feel like gas tastes like gasoline. You know, I grew up on dirt bikes and in that race community and I know what gasoline smells like. I know what high octane gasoline smells like, and I don't feel like cannabis smells like gasoline to me, but I know what people are talking about when they say gas. So you know, so I, I use the term too. I'm like, oh yeah, that smells like gas because that's how everybody identifies with it. But um, yeah, those OGs, man, they were super gassy. You know, they make, almost make your eyes water and they make your nose tingle. And and they'd, they, I would get the sweats from some of these, you know, I can literally remember like trimming some of them and like sweat beating up on my forehead and pouring down my face. And just because the Terps are so loud and offensive, it was like, Oh, good God. Like, yeah, right. but it would be, it would be neat. I would be so stoked and 
if somebody could make a cross of, uh, of something that had that true OG flavor that we could put out as like a melt or a rosin. Yeah, I'm sure it's coming down the pipeline eventually. You know, it's just a matter of time almost, it seems like. And, you know, that's one of the things that I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts on is we mentioned earlier the flavors and you're talking about how you wish there was an OG that was a washer. So, you know, solventless for the time being has, I don't know if I'd call them disadvantages, but maybe limits. So do you feel like there's kind of a bottlenecking of genetics when it comes to solventless, you know, especially being someone who's popping a lot of seeds from a lot of different people and mentioning earlier that you feel that a lot of times people are just mimicking each other. Do you feel that there's a specific type of genetic bottlenecking that's happening in order to create hashers? Uh, Yeah. The the short answer is yes, absolutely. You know, it's kind of unfortunate and it is just the way that it seems to work. You know, it's like, ultimately we're trying to get this specific sized trichome gland, you know, that, has the terpenes that won't eat through the the cell wall once they get into that water contact. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of of fire genetics out there that just aren't stable enough once they get in contact with that water to not dissolve and melt and just grease down your bags. And yeah, so we we are limited and there does seem to be a little bit of a bottleneck, but I also feel like if you just keep going in with uh, certain crosses that you can sometimes find something that washes where most of it didn't wash. And I, I think Pua talked about that. You know, he mentioned that, you know, if you just kept hunting the seeds that eventually you'd find one that had the right trichome glands and the right mix of terpenes to where you could get that cross into something that washed. And I feel like that's kind of happening too. Like when I did the raspberry Bellini, there was a lot that were not washers, you know, and they were just baked with trichomes, you know, so frosty, had nose for days, but they didn't wash. And then we found, you know, a couple that did wash. So I think that it's possible that if you just keep hunting enough seeds, you can eventually find, I think, you know, Pooh is definitely onto it with that. And so, you know, tip of the cap to him for, for sharing that information and encouraging people to hunt a lot of beans of, of one flavor and try to find that treasure for, for all of us, you know? Right. So let's talk about hash because it is a hash show after all, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you talked a little bit about your early experience with Bubble making it down at Cloud9 when did you really get into growing specifically for resin and why? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so to wrap up like the cloud nine thing, like 2012 came and the city shut everybody down, you know, they was like, 
200 plus dispensaries and they put an injunction on everyone. And we fought that, you know, and we wound up with like a, a delivery license and, um, and it was cool. We did it for another two years. We did delivery and stuff, but a bunch of illegal shops opened up, you know, unlicensed and there just wasn't the patient flow that there used to be to be able to maintain the business. So about 2014, around halfway through that year, we just called it a wrap and, and I came back, uh, back up to Northern California area. And, um, was kind of doing my thing up here for a while and and I I had a a spot a warehouse and in that warehouse I had just set up my I just planted my my crop and unfortunately the warehouse next to me was also growing and they had a BHO extraction facility in their shop and and I didn't know anything about it but they got raided and I got raided subsequently too and they tried to say that I was partners with this guy and I wasn't or anything like that. And the charge at the time was manufacturing, polycycle, whatever. It was PCP was the charge. And it just, it was like terrifying to me. You know, it was like, oh my God, I'm, I might be looking at prison now. Like I've got to get an attorney and fight for my freedom. And I want right. to be a part of my daughter's life. You know, like this is not, cool dude and sort of like going through that process um i you know i've been sharing my experience with my friends and stuff like that and my buddy had said to me well you know there's there's these other things out there too that it's called it's called rosin and people are taking these like t-shirt presses and they're you know they're squishing you know their buds and and stuff like that and i'm like oh no way that's rad so you know, lo- you know, long story short, I, I finished up that, um, that court case and we won it, you know, cause I had no affiliation with him. They, you know, they couldn't prove it cause there was none. So they ended up dropping the charges and everything. And, uh, and I stepped into rosin and that was just a wonderful thing for me because it was more aligned with the style of growing that I was doing is like, Oh, this is solventless. You know, this is sweet. You know, we can, we can squish these buds and get a little bit of resin out of it. And so I bought a, a Nug Smasher Pro, which I don't think anybody uses that rosin press. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I started squishing some flour. I actually still have my first like two gram, like little flower puck that I squished. It's like pinned on my wall. It's my little, my little memorabilia thing from where it all started. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, it was that uh, super glue at the time. So, it, you know, I've been doing a little bit of flour for that first year and, you know, I'd squished, you know, a few pounds and it was like, God, there's just no yield to this. Like this is not working out. And at the same time, I had seen people online doing these presses with like way bigger returns that looked like the rosin was flowing out of their bags. I'm like, what in the world are they doing? And I came across the dry sift rosin. So I bought myself a set of those really nice wood frame screens and, and I tried out that whole like sift game. 
And I did, you know, if you go back on my page, you can see like that sift experience that I had, you know, I'll show like the old dirty piles, the, the waste product and contaminants, the legs and, and plant particulate and the cleaned up trichome heads. And then I show like the press that came out of that. And they were nice and clear and they're pretty dang stable too. It was, it was a good product and it was a great experience. You know, it was, it was like, oh, creating refined heads. This is so neat. and. It wore me out. I'll tell you what, doing that paint roller tech and like dragging my hand across the screen again and again and again and trying to do it for like four, six, I couldn't even do it for eight hours. I'd get this knot between my shoulder blades and I'd be like done for like two, three days after that because I like pushed so hard to like get this, you know, quarter pound of dry sift of cleaned product, you know, finished clean quarter pound. And then I press it so dang fast, you know, it'd be like, oh, I want more. Like, how do I get more, <laughs> you know? So I, I eventually was like, you know, I just kept digging and I would start to hear people talking about these freeze dryers. And, you know, I was like, okay, let me get a freeze dryer. Let me just go ahead and make that investment. And I went, you know, all in with like the money that I had to be able to buy the equipment to do like the freeze dryer, the ice machine, the ice extract bags, you know, so I bought, you know, the, the really nice bags and everything. And, and, and I got lucky because I had met horror seeds at um, the cannabis cup in Sacramento, the high times cup. And he had encouraged me to buy a bunch of the Oni seed gear, you know, which end up being like a lot of it's like Harry's work, Harry Palm's work. But it was at the time it was slated as Oni Seed Co. So I had bought, you know, the the papaya cake and I bought the tally mon and I bought the poontang pie and I bought the LA Kush cake. And so that first year that I stepped into whole plant fresh frozen and They're all using just like that, winners. They were all winners. I got so lucky. And, you know, shout out to Horror Seeds because thank him so much for like putting me on game on what to buy. And I had told him what I was up to, what I was trying to accomplish. So he steered me in the right direction. And, and I actually, I've gotten the chance to know him, you know, my daughter and his wife and him and I, we, we've done some Disneyland trips together and had some dinners and they're just, they're, they're beautiful people. There's so many good people in this industry and, and there's some of them. So just again, grateful to, to meet them and to know them and that they put me on game right off the bat. It was such a, yeah, blessing. that was nice. <laughs> yeah. So went from that dry sift, you know, and that paint roller tech to the whole plant fresh frozen and the freeze dryers. And that product came out blonde. And the first stuff that I that I ever washed was the LA Kush cake. You know, the, the Kush mints cross the wedding cake from JBZ. And it dumped. And it's like still a winner. I still have it to this day. It's, you know, six percent, you know, five and a half. Getting started, you know, doing strains like Kush Cake and Papaya Cake and Poontang Pie and Talimon was just, it was a total blessing. And, and I'm really grateful for Horror Seeds pointing me into that direction. Um, it made it made transitioning into this world of whole plant fresh frozen 
almost seamless for me, you know, and just pulling out winners and five plus percenters right off the bat was, was awesome, you know, just great. So yeah, I went from that, you know, and, and just really haven't looked back and it went from 2018 to 2019 to 2020. And so the last three plus years have been, you know, just dedicated to doing whole plant, fresh frozen And it's been a total blessing. I really love the community and the scene and, you know, doing melt and fresh press and cold cures and jams and stuff. It's, it's really great. It's, it's all very, um, inspirational work where you just get really enthusiastic about what you're doing and and being able to create something. And so there's a, a high level of passion that's coming out by being able to work in this field. Yeah, and it goes back to a little bit about what you were talking about where you seem to appreciate, you know, craftsmanship. You appreciate something that's, you know, made by hand, done by hand. And, you know, even in your style of, of hash making, you've you've kind of gone back to that versus a machine. So you talked a little bit about your style. So can you kind of expand a little bit more on some of the things that you've learned in in washing and impressing and just kind of overall about cannabis resin as you focused on growing for hash or growing for rosin. Yeah. Yeah. So with like, I think kind of the start of that question being like the, the old school techniques or the old world techniques of doing things by hand and and being a craftsman and, you know, small batch gets thrown around because there's so many varying levels of small batch, but definitely like the craft style work, you know, is something that resonates with me at a high level. And, you know, I, I talked about coffee earlier too, or like, you know, wine and stuff like that. And, you know, you can, you can see like within coffee, like some of the best coffee is small batch hand roasted in these drums. And, you know, I get to like emulate some of that stuff with like, with like hand washing. And then, you know, so we'll, we'll do it by hand instead of with the machines now. And it gives us that touch for it. We get to see how much pressure we're putting onto it and how hard we're actually stirring it. And then when it comes to like the rosin pressing itself, uh, I use kind of like a combination technique. So I'll go and I'll raise the platens into place and contact the bags with the pneumatic, with the compressor. And then once they're in place, I switch over to the hand pump. And the reason that I'm doing that is, is I can feel the rosin flowing with the hand pump. So I can feel, cause you know, when you're first starting out, it's like not even really registering on the pressure gauge. There's like no numbers going up, but yet, you know, you're contacting it and there's a small amount of pressure. And so I can, I can sit there and I can feel it flowing through the bags, you know, and I just go real slow and real gentle with it. And, um, and I like being able to, to be able to feel it by hand instead of having it fully automated for me. And I know that that's kind of a, a more popular thing out there is like some of these presses are, are going for that automation now. 
And again, it's always like a to each his own thing. You know, I'm not saying anybody's doing it wrong or anything, but that's the way that I prefer to do it. I like to, to hand press, if you will, you know, with the, the hand pump and we like to hand wash. So it's, it's more of like a craft style and doing it with like, like I touched on it earlier, we're trying to do it with a little bit more heart and love into the products versus like cranking it out and putting out as much bulk work as we can with like the biggest yielding crops that we can, you know, with synthetic nutrients and using sprays so that there's never any bugs and we get the biggest yields. It's like, uh, we're going to, we're going to sacrifice in some ways. We're going to have like this low light situation where we're in this valley but we're going to get better resin and we're going to grow it organically to have, you know, higher terpene content. And then, um, and then just some of the techniques, you know, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but you know, from the double bagging, you know, that we're using and then the, the way that we're feeling the rosin flowing from, from it all and the way that we're filling the jars and everything, there's a lot of thought that goes into each step. It's not just like thrown together, you know, and so there's a lot of care and a lot of love that goes into producing this. Yeah. And you touched upon the consistencies and, you know, that's one of the things that you and I first started communicating about was this thumbprint that you have going on, which funny enough, I saw maybe last week that is inspired by a cookie. And, you know, I think it's an intriguing presentation because you're combining two forms of rosin into one and it allows the experience to be singular mixed and then it also allows for i suppose the opportunity to mix cultivars which the opportunity that i had to try that work was a sunday driver i believe which you know going back to this idea that you were just talking about and we've talked about throughout the podcast of this specific land that you're growing in and all these specific factors of being a little east of what's considered the Emerald Triangle, I think you mentioned to me, and and getting kind of the best of both worlds where you're getting a lot of that microclimate, but at the same time, you're not getting as much humidity. And, you know, that factoring into the expressions of these plants, that Sunday driver was very enjoyable, but very different than other Sunday drivers that I've tried. And then that's not to say that I've tried a ton, but the expression was different. And then being able to try it together and separate, and then also seeing how that resin, let's call it settled over time as well, and created almost a different texture of its own was pretty intriguing. So talk to me about that concept and, and where that came from and what that's all about. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, like you said, you, you saw in the post that thumbprint cookie and that's really where it came from, you know, not eating sugar very much these days. And every now and again, I'll spoil myself with a little bit. And uh, the local food co-op puts out like these organic bakery treats. And one of them is this thumbprint cookie. It's this really nice white cookie with powdered sugar across the top. And um, they like to do it with like a lemon jam on the inside. And sometimes they'll put like a strawberry jam on the inside of it. And um, 
so yeah, just kind of sitting at my little window and and having a coffee and a, and a thumbprint cookie. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. It's like you could put cold cure on the outside with that nice lighter color looking thing and then put, you know, uh, live raws and jam on the center or a lot of some people call it sauce, but I, I like to go with the jam name and, and you could emulate the thumbprint rosin cookie or thumbprint cookie, but this would be thumbprint rosin. And so I, I had the idea and I just sat with it for like a couple months and then finally decided to take action on it. And it was over the summertime and I'm like, boom, here we go. Here's the first one. So I gave that prototype out to a buddy of mine, Earl Terpreneur, and um, got his feedback on it and he loved it. And then, you know, I did it for a couple other people and they really liked it. And then I decided to just really lean into that and, and dedicate a large portion of the full spec to that. So, cause I, I like to do micron specific, you know, so I'll put, you know, my, my first wash 90 and 120 will go as a melt. And then the second and third wash 90 and 120 will go as like a fresh press. And then the fourth through sixth wash 90 and 120 and the first through sixth wash 70 and 40 will go all into a full spec. And um, that's what I'm calling it. And so that uh, I'll do is like my cold cure. And then I'll also dedicate a portion of that to make a jam with. So the jam will be a full spec jam as well. And then, you know, I'll go and make all the different flavors. Like you were saying, we can mix the cultivars at that point in time. So I'll have like one big batch of Granimals jam because, you know, it's got that great pie to it. Or I'll do the Sunday driver jam, like the flavor you got to try. And so I'll have one big batch of that. And then I'll have, you know, some full spec cold cure of molten melon and some full spec cold cure of Scotty faced or pure cake breath or flow white, you know, and then we'll, we'll line that inside up with that jam. And so it's a way to create all these different unique profiles. And then it gives that people that versatility too, like you had discovered yourself. And, you know, a lot of times I get that feedback from the public, you know, it's like they get to try it and then they get to let me know what they think of it. So we hear about um, putting a little bit of jam on the end of your dab dabber and a little bit of cold cure on the end of it, right? And then you take your dab and that's like one flavor. And then you could have just the jam itself and that's another flavor. And then you could have just the cold cure and that's another flavor. And then some people whip it all together and that creates another flavor, which you would think like it should be just the same as having a little jam and a little bit of the cold cure, but it's not. Once you like whip it together, it becomes like its own little beast too. It like homogenizes, or I don't know if that's the right word or not, but it it does something and, and you're right, the flavor and even maybe the effect is a little bit different than if you just, like you said, take those two and and take a little dab of each together. 
Yeah, it's cool. And, and it's certainly reminiscent of it. It's not like you're not like, it's, you know, just completely different all of a sudden. It's For sure. you know, you're like, oh, those are there and that's there. But yet it's its own new thing too. So it gives that thumbprint jar, it gives it some versatility. So you're able to, to sort of mix and match and choose as you go, instead of just blending it all together at once, you know, and then you're kind of stuck with that. You can't undo it once you've mixed it all together, which is cool too. I, I like mixing things together, you know, just, just recently I did a sour garlic cookies and a GMO that I mixed together. We're calling it sour GMO and it's gassy, <laughs> if you will. You know, it's got the, the bum's pocket cut of the GMO and it's got that fino that I hunted out of the sour garlic cookies and the two of them together are phenomenal. And, you know, it's, it's super loud coming out of the jar. So I definitely like mixing things together too, but it's just another way to offer something a little different to the public and, and it's people have responded to it very well and they like the different textures, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think one of the things that I keep hearing is that you take into account the feedback that you're getting a lot, you know, that that's kind of one of the driving forces. And so I'm curious how you handle the balance between what you like, what people like, and, you know, finding a compromise between that. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly know what I like. Uh, these days, I, well, to be honest with you, I like almost all the flavors. I, I like what's called a gas and I like the fruity ones. I like citrus, you know, and sometimes I hear pushback on citrus. Sometimes I hear pushback on grape, but I, I really like all the different flavors. So for me, it's like, what do I want today? Right. But I also really like to listen to what people have to say and what they prefer. And, you know, for example, one of the ones that I've done is this watermelon ring. And I like it because it's like, it's light, it's refreshing. Like a watermelon, it's not very loud. You know, watermelon itself isn't a loud fruit. You know, it's not like an orange, you know, it's not like a strawberry. It's very light flavored. But I've gotten feedback on it to where it's like a couple people said it wasn't their favorite. And when you have people reach out to you and tell you something along those lines, like it's not my favorite. They're basically telling you they don't like it, you know? Right. It's a nice way. (laughs) And you never hear that from the strains that are just full blown winners, you know? So if you get like some feedback from like multiple different people that tell you it's not their favorite, it's like, okay, well, we're probably going to stop putting that one out, you know? And that Which is really funny be- because out of the four varieties that I tried, I told you that that was actually my favorite because it was so, I'm going to call it delicate instead of light. And the name is really on point because like you said, it, does have a very unique watermelon terp to it, but it's it's light, you know? But at the same time, there's something nice to these delicate profiles, but they're not for everybody, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's refreshing in my opinion, you know? And so, I mean, 
Yeah, it's like at that point in time, you kind of start to get on the fence about it. Like, do we keep it and just run it in a real little batch or do we, you know, get rid of it completely, you know? And, and that's kind of what helps steer what we hold on to because we have so many more genetics that we want to pop and hunt this coming up year. And then, you know, what do we end up doing? You know, we can't, we already have 50 plus. So, right we've got to eliminate some and it can be difficult because like some are kind of lower yielders like that UK cheese or like uh, the flow white number seven, you know, they're like in the three and a half range, like barely scratching at four, but people seem to love them, you know, Sunday driver. That's another one is kind of a low yield and the plants are small. It's not a vigorous grower and, but people love them. So we kind of want to hold on to that. And then we have other things like the watermelon rain where it's like, it's a dumper, you know, you're getting like close to 5% off of it, you know, and um, it's stable. I can put it out as melt and I could put it out as rosin. But when you get that feedback like that, you're like, uh, I don't know, maybe we kind of want to cull this one and, and right. continue on hunting some others. Cause at a certain point, like it's just, I can't grow that many different strains or hold on to that many genetics. For sure. I'm sure it's, it's difficult. And like you said, there's all these other genetic pools that are waiting for you to explore them. So it makes it even harder. It seems like, and you know, I'm curious your thoughts on, on melt versus rosin, not that one necessarily is better than the other, but what are your opinions on, you know, growing really good resin and keeping it in melt form and then growing really good resin and then pressing it into rosin. Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of, a lot of chat and people trying to influence each other out there about this exact subject. And uh, I try not to get like caught up in it and take anything like personally or whatever, but I, I don't really appreciate it when people try to talk bad about melt or when people try to talk bad about doing only rosin it's like just do whatever you want to do but you don't got to like try to sway everybody's opinions you know and so I think I kind of wanted to air that out just a little bit right there but for myself I I really like to put out a melt I think what you know the trichome head is where the medicine's at like we talked about and it's in its purest form at that point in time you know it's removed from all that plant matter it hasn't seen any heat it hasn't seen any filtration to be cleaned up or anything and i just think it's such a beautiful pure thing at that point you know and if you for me if i can put something out as melt then i will and i'll even stray sometimes into like a five star because I just think it's such a nice, unique terp profile that like, God, I don't want to not, you know, have this available as melt. So, right. um, yeah, I put out as much melt as I can, but it's only coming from that first wash. A lot of times it can only be that 90 U because the 120 has too much particulate in it, even in the first wash. So, you know, we, we're always checking it out and, you know, doing a little finger press and seeing, you know, how it looks and, and if this is suitable or not, you know, and, and if it is, then we will put it out as melt. And then, you know, if it's not, then it's going to get all rosined. So this is kind of how it works. But yeah, I think, I think melt is like 
the pinnacle. It's definitely the most difficult to achieve. It's the smallest pool to pull from, you know, because like all of it can turn into rosin, but only some of it can be melt. So if it even can, I definitely want to honor that. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. But you were at the Ego Clash last year and you were in the rosin category, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> and what did you compete with? Oh, I brought, I brought the garlic cocktail, which is uh, GMO crossed with the mimosa. And the mimosa is the clementine crossed with the purple punch. And that's really what people are getting out of it is that clementine, orange, just heavy, heavy citrus flavor. And um, this is kind of a funny story. I haven't shared this one with you, but so I, I put it out and I did it as a jam and I, I love making the jam, you know, and, and I just, I, I felt like I hit a home run with this jam. Like it was, it came out like the best consistency. I was so happy with it. It was so chunky in the jar. It was like the crystals came up and out and they were like bulging out of the top. It was just so neat <laughs> looking while it was growing, you know, under the heat mats. And like, I was just, I was just super happy with it. And so got it all into its container and brought it out there or whatever. And as I went to go submit it, they were like, solventless? Like at the counter, I'm like, yeah. And so they gave me my little thing and I was, I was R1. So I was Rosin 1. And, um, and then later on, so, you know, I, I saw my jar come around, you know, and I was like, kind of smiling and listening to everybody at the table <laughs> talk to about it. You know, people were kind of tripped out, you know, and um, I ended up being the only jam entry at Ego Clash last year. It's like 90% was cold cure. There was just a little bit of fresh press. And then this one guy had this THC mechanical separation, THCA. And um, it was uh, the guys from, I think it was from Michigan. You know, and they had that purple, really nice looking stuff. It was beautiful, purple crystals and stuff. It was really nice. Um, but yeah, I was the only jam entry. And then later on in the evening when they had the award ceremonies, they had these cases in that hall, you know, that tunnel, that side. Yeah, yeah, room. yeah. So my entry was in the uh, BHO side. <laughs> it was next to all the sugars and stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I was like so like nervous and timid that I was just having a hard time approaching Brandon. And then I finally I was like sacked up and was like, hey, hey Brandon, my, uh, my entry's in the uh, BHO cabinet instead of the solventless one. He's like, oh, big dog, just take it out of there and put it in the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I opened up the cases and everyone's all looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing in the cases? You know, and I grabbed my little jar and switched it over. But by that point, it was like the end of the night and everybody had already gotten like their videos of the cases and, and stuff like that. And yeah. yeah, and he's like, oh, it looks so good, you know, that I thought it was a, a sugar. And I'm like, oh, that's thank you for the compliment, you know. And, <laughs> no, that's pretty funny, man. I mean, and it's funny that like you were super proud of it and that it obviously did uh, what Solventless was trying to do at first, which is mimic the look of the hydrocarbons, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it came out phenomenal. I was super happy about it. It was a, 
it was first wash 90U garlic cocktail. And when you do like the, the, the first, second or third wash and it's like a cl- real clean and you do like a 90 or a 120, yeah. the, the jam comes out just so nice and light. I mean, it'll be a little darker. It always gets a little bit darker, you know, just coming out as a jam, but it's so nice and, and chunky crystal. And yeah, I, I really like putting out a product like that but it can be hit and miss. Not everybody knows about it. And sometimes I'll get it in my DMs like, oh, I got this. And, you know, I was told it was solventless, but is this BHO? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, what? You know, so it's, right. as long as it's been around, you know, a couple of years already, people are still tripped out by it. Yeah, that's interesting. And again, when you hear back from all these people, out there in the world experiencing your product, it's interesting to hear back and, and see where people are at in their education in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's still so many people that are coming into it. And there's people that have been in the game, like breeders and stuff like that, that I've known for years. And it's still new to them, you know? And, and I'm sort of educating them on, you know, some of the different stuff. So... Uh, from my perspective, the solventless game has like still so much room for growth. It's still in its infancy. Yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I think this is a good point for us to take a smoke break. If you love hash and you want cool gear to reflect that, check out our homies Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. Visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com or on their Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society. It's such a cool opportunity to be working with Six Star because I love their gear on a personal level. They put out super fun designs that are specifically geared for the hash community. And a lot of their designs are designs that many of us are familiar with already. One of my favorites is their Saved by the Melts call it nostalgia but mixing one of my favorite childhood shows and my favorite adult pastime hash does it for me they have these really cool single source jackets with a sick design by eli munster that'll keep you warm and dry in the washroom while still looking sharp they've done collabs with eric nugshots using his images for some of their gear they have their full melt line they just put out their super cool hash gym design and as you would expect with a company named six star society all their gear is top-notch it's made of high quality material great craftsmanship it's gear that will last so again if you love hash and you want cool high quality gear to reflect that visit sixstarsociety.com and use our savings code the letters thi to save five percent on your entire order you know what's interesting to me is we've had a a great long conversation about cannabis and uh, in part, I brought up the ego clash because you told me that after that event, you took like 36 dabs because you were on the rosin side or, or something of that sort. And, you know, by the time you got home a couple of days later, your, your tolerance was so high that for a while there you were taking uh, three grams a day approximately and fat dabs uh, when you were taking them. But the last eight months have been a big shift in your life and you call that transformational. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's funny that the guy who's growing the fire 
you know, has this terp vault of all these amazing flavors, but hasn't touched them in, let's say, eight months. Yeah. 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 So that that's exactly right. The ego clash was this huge transformational point for me. That's where I met Cuban grower, Ozzy. And um, from then we did our little collab together and, and it's been such a beautiful thing. Just all the growth, like prior to that, I didn't have like a label or any real branding or anything. You know, my entry had um, my name Cannabis Chris written on the top of it in a Sharpie marker. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, everybody else has got their cool labels and, you know, and, and here's my one label with like Sharpie on it in the, in the uh, case. <laughs> but uh, since then, I was able to create like branding and there's been like a ton of growth and, and it's been multifaceted, you know, not just for like the brand, but um, like you also touched on when I came back from that experience, my tolerance was so incredibly high, you know, and I had been smoking like three grams a day that I felt like I was almost like getting a little like mentally ill from it. My anxiety levels were like through the roof and my mind would wander and, but I was just still staying like super stoned and, and smoking so much every day, just these globs, you know, these monster dabs. And, you know, through some like counseling and stuff, I was like able to see that that might not be like the best thing for me. And, you know, I've been smoking really since I was like 16 years old and like every day, you know, since I was 18 and always providing for people too. So it's just like always around, like it's been my life, like, you know, it's been everything that I've done. And, um, It was like, well, what would adult life be like sober? And the truth is, I I don't know. I've never experienced it. And so I decided to take that leap and see what life could be like sober, you know, for the first time in my life and clear up my brain and just kind of see what would happen. And so I I stopped smoking. I, I attempted to stop smoking on 420. And it took me about 12 days to, to fully put it down. I would have to have like a little dab at nighttime to feel like I could fall asleep, you know. And by May 2nd, I was able to, to officially stop. And I haven't had a dab since. And um, through that, I feel like I've grown tremendously. Like my brain has cleared up a lot, you know. It's not like I can't lose my train of thought. Of course I still can, you know. And Um, Of course, I still feel a little anxious here and there, you know, but the anxiety levels have reduced significantly. And I feel like I'm able to focus quite a bit better than I had been in the past. And my relationships with like my daughter and my family have just gotten a lot stronger, you know. I'm able to like stay more connected in conversations and, and not wander so much. And so... Uh, I feel like in so many different ways, I've been able to grow because once I remove that in like always kind of looping back to getting high again, I'm able to now step into things like meditation and, you know, go into like reading or journaling or well-being practices. So instead of like having a fat dab, I'll do like breath work. 
or I'll go and I'll do like a foam roller routine and like give myself a full body massage. So I'm doing things to care for myself, you know, and, and feel better um, in a more natural way instead of getting high to feel good, you know. And um, I, I still love cannabis and I feel like, you know, my, my goal is for one year. I feel like I probably will start smoking again come 420. But I know that it will probably not be like it was, like anything like it was, because I've been valuing and appreciating this sobriety like so much. It's it's really crazy for me to say, you know, considering like my whole life. But uh, I think at this point in time, like with the low levels of sugar and organic eating and no drinking or anything like that, you could actually say that I'm straight edge. <laughs> it's bizarre for me to spit that out but that's that's some real talk you know and yeah well you know and and that's one of the big things on your on your feed um which is obviously how people connect with each other and in this case with you as an audience and you know i know you post a lot about what you're you're consuming like your food and you're hoping that that's kind of motivational to people and you know i'm the the thought that's crossed my mind, it's like, well, what if somebody comes to you and says, hey, Chris, you know, like you're doing all this good stuff, but you've been doing this forever. And like, I can never get there or I can't make these kind of changes that you're making. What would you say to that? Um, I would say that, you know, that you got to just give it a try, you know, and, and take one step at a time and, you know, start with little changes some people can change everything all at once and do this like rapid transformation, but not everybody can. And I would say try to tackle one thing at a time, you know, and, and not feel like, don't tell yourself, I'm never going to have this again, because that will fuck your head up. It'll make you feel very deprived and like things are being taken away from you. You know, it's it's really beneficial to say, I'm gaining health or I'm gaining a more clear mind, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more mentally healthy, you know, and mental health is like something that a lot of people are, are struggling with. Right. And there's nothing wrong with like trying out some things that might help you stabilize, you know, and balance your serotonin. And a lot of that comes from what you eat. And um, and the and the different exercise practices that you have, so you know, just take on take one little thing at a time. Put a carrot on your plate, you know. Have a little celery and uh, go for a walk in the morning, you know. Take your dog out or or whatever, and just start slow and and don't beat yourself up if you don't stick to it every day. But yeah, you'll be surprised, you know, as the time goes by, you'll look back and be like, wow, look at all these different things that I've been able to change for myself. And I do feel a lot better, but yeah, just be patient with yourself, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's good sound advice. And, you know, one of the things that you were mentioning to me earlier that, and even not too long ago on the podcast is that you feel like it's done a lot of good for your brand like you mentioned, you, you had no logo. And now, you know, let's talk about a little bit about the Star Wars, uh, because it's obviously a big part of, you know, who 
the real cannabis Chris is or the brand is. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you have that Etsy shop. I'm not even into Star Wars, like I told you, but I bought a few of your things because I just think the design is cool. And, you know, much like with like Ricky Williams, uh, the story about meeting the artist who is making this artwork for you is kind of interesting. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for supporting me. I really appreciate that, Shragam. And, um, of course, man. Just to, just to dip back before we, we go forward a little bit more is, you know, with the health stuff that I'm posting, like the food and, and stuff like that, I get people in my DMs all the time telling me that I'm inspiring them to make a change and, you know, their wives. And I, so I hear about it almost every day and sometimes multiple people in a day. And people tell me, well, if you're caring for yourself like that, you know, you must be caring for the plants like that too. And the truth is I was actually caring for the plants like that prior to before. myself. <laughs> and now I'm finally feeding myself like I own those plants. <laughs> yeah. And you told me something earlier that, that resonates with that point is that, you know, now that you're taking care of yourself more, you have more to give. You have more positivity, more energy, more good vibes to share with, with others. Yeah. Yeah. Self-care is not selfish, you know? The more you take care of yourself and practice well-being for yourself, the better off that you're going to be, the more stable that you're going to be, the more happier you're going to be because you're working on yourself. It starts with the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror. And so when you feel better, your interactions with other people are going to feel better. They're going to appreciate you more. And then they're going to take that vibe and go and spread that to the next person. So really the one of the biggest things that we can do to like help heal our world is to look inward and take accountability and responsibility for the way that we're acting and the way that we're feeling and what we're giving out, you know, instead of trying to fix other people, it's about, well, Hey, let me be responsible for myself, you know? And so, um, yeah, self-care is not selfish, you know? So that, that's kind of neat. And, um, and then, you know, like it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, a, a tangent, but it's real relative is like when we're doing like the fresh press and stuff like that, I feel like that's kind of like, it also like exemplifies the, st- the style, the lifestyle that I'm trying to live is doing like clean living. So I'm trying to put out a real clean, fresh press. And I know I'm always like, really like, um, drawing a lot of attention to that with like clear tech and clarity counts and the difference is clear. And I'm just trying to put out a real clear, clean product. And, and I think, cause a lot of times people are making these cold cures and they might not being be, they might not be uh, being as upfront as they should be about what's going into that because the cold cures can come out real light colored and it yeah. just, it can be like a slew of different microns in there, you know, these mixed microns, like these seventies through one forty nines. And, um, it's much more difficult to hide that almost impossible. Like if you're doing a real clear 90 or one twenty fresh press. And so you can just kind of see it in the product, you know, how clean and nice it is. And, and I don't want to say colors, everything it's not, but, it oftentimes is a big indication of, of what's going on right there. 
Right. The one thing I have heard about the fresh fresh or or kind of the sentiment I get is it. One of the obstacles, let's call them, is just having to maintain the product at a steady temperature or environment until it, it gets to the consumer. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I totally recognize that too. And I'm always encouraging people to come. Well, I, I always, yeah, I'm going to watch what I say right there. <laughs> <laughs> I pack it on ice, you know, it's always got to be on ice. And I tell them right. to put it in their freezers, you know, and to store it in their freezers. And when they give it to people to tell them to put it in their freezers. And then when you pull it out, give it a chance to warm up just a little bit. You know, you don't got to warm it up all day or anything, but give it, you know, like 20 minutes or something to where it can come closer to room temperature. And then when you take that cap off, it's not going to condensate, you know, and and so there, that's really the way to be caring for it, I think, is to be storing it in the freezer even more so than the refrigerator, you know, and that's going to help to avoid like that buttering or anything like that. And if you like to butter it, that's cool. That's all gravy. I think what's important is, is when you get it in that fresh press, you know it is what it is because you can see that quality to it. And then if you choose to butter it, you can. You can leave it out on your table overnight or whatever. And it gives you that versatility too, you know, like uh, being able to have it as a fresh press or as a butter. And how far into that buttering did you want to take it? How much did you want to dry it out, you know? Because that's essentially what's happening is it's like drying up, you know? Those terpenes are volatile. So as they gas off, it'll start to butter and change its consistency. Right. And... It, you know, but then you have that choice to take it as far or, you know, not at all if you want to. But if you cold cure it, you're not taking it back to a fresh press. So if you get it the fresh press, you can choose to take it to where you want it to. And yeah, so I, I, I just think that that's kind of the nicer way to put it out and that people need to be storing or should, you know, for preservation, store it in their freezers. Yeah, and remind me what you're making into your quote-unquote cold cure because really it's like a room temp cure, right, basically, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll store it in my refrigerator for like a couple of weeks, you know, and sometimes if it's not changing because it's just too damn stable, like the cookies and cream is just so stable, it just doesn't want to change. I, I got a jar in my fridge right now that's been in my fridge that I don't plan on releasing until like springtime, right? And it still looks like fresh press in my refrigerator of cookies and cream because it's just so fucking stable. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, you know, and I've heard people say recently, I don't know who it was, but they were like, refrigerating this cold cure is, is basically just slowing down the inevitable progression of it anyways. So do you feel like there's actually something positive happening by storing it? Or in this case, like, is it just something you don't, you don't want to put out now? And you're keeping it in there for that reason. Yeah. Well, so when I cold cure things at a real slow rate, I've noticed that when I go to whip it, it is just ultra soft, you know, like that, uh, the Cuban grower collab that we did, that was like a six month cure. And those were so incredibly soft. They reminded me of like, 
fresh frozen um, ice cream, you know, like uh, it was just like just the softest texture ever. So I think, you know, that's kind of nice when you do that real slow cold cure like that. Um, but generally speaking, the cold cure is done at room temp and that's probably what it should be called is like the room temp cure, you know? Right. And, um, and then you ask like, what microns am I using? And for myself, uh, I, gen- I rarely do a 90 or a 120 cold cure every now and again, I'll do it, but it's real rare. And generally speaking, I'll do a full spec cold cure. And that's because it comes, becomes a lighter color. And again, that's why I feel like a lot of people are kind of like hiding things in their cold cure. And cold cure is just so popular these days. It's like, I'll, I'll stick with fresh press for the most part, you know. But what I like to do is I'll do my 90 and 120 fourth through sixth wash as part of the cold cure. And then the 70 and 40 um, first through sixth wash. Okay. So... Yeah, yeah, it's a combination out, of things. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, do, I don't put out the 70 and the 40 um, first, second, or third as an isolated, you know, a micron specific. That will just be the 90 and the 120. And that's just the way that I do it. And that's kind of the cool thing. And, you know, I've talked about this before, too. It's it's still like the Wild West, you know, there's no law on how to do it. You know, it's like, do what's calling to you and to each his own. We all get to do what we want, you know, and that's kind of right. the fun thing is follow your heart and just do what's fun for you. I agree. And I mean, I think that's part of what's so exciting about these times is that, you know, experimenting is only pushing things forward, whether you agree with it or not. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be discovered right now. And yeah, I just can't wait to see all the new things that come down the pipe as the, the years progress. Yeah, me too, man. Well, Chris, I know we have been hanging out for a super long time, possibly the longest interview I've done. Um, so thank you for being so generous with your time. I've had a blast. Hopefully you've had a good time as well. So I'll start winding it down. Shragam, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I was feeling it, man. Yeah, we've been talking exhaustively, you know, extensively. <laughs> and I, I'm real grateful to be able to get out my story. You know, it's it's been a pleasure to share these different things with you. And, and I'm thankful for your time, for you letting me, me get out all those different thoughts and, and share, you know, perspective. It's It's great to be seen and heard. And thank you very much for having me. Absolutely, man. It's my pleasure. And I'm sure others will not only enjoy your story, but, you know, learn from it. And there's always a little tidbits here and there, like you said, some, some gold mines that might be helpful to people as well. So I know you've, you've repeated that you want to bring value uh, to people listening. And and I think you've done that, man. So I, I appreciate you again. You know, you have this kind of vision I feel like of kind of like riding off into the sunset you had it with dispensary number one you had it with dispensary number two and now you mentioned to me you have kind of this vision uh, for the future for yourself and for the brand and I still want to talk about the Star Wars art (laughs) but talk to me a little bit about what you see you know you mentioned cannabis possibly going legal, not only nationally, but globally, and how you see yourself in that. 
Yeah. Yeah. So do you want me to hit the, that stuff first or the Star Wars stuff? <laughs> uh, I'll leave it up to you. Well, yeah, that's probably the, the best to wrap it up with. So let me hit that Star Wars stuff real quick. Um, okay. <laughs> the Star Wars stuff is neat for me, you know, like while I've been doing all this washing and, you know, the extracting and the pressing and everything, obviously your hands are occupied. And we're talking like 12, 16 hour days, really trying to kick this brand off the ground, like doing it all by myself, all the washing, all the pressing, all the growing, all the jarring, all the labeling, really to kick it off. And now I'm, I'm very grateful because I have a team around me supporting me and they're all beautiful people with really great attitudes and they're self-motivated and shout out to the crew. <laughs> um, but while I'm doing all that, my my hands were occupied, but my ears weren't. And so I was able to listen to a lot of, of self-help books and, um, and different like health podcasts. And I wouldn't always want to be gobbling up information on what was good for my health and well-being, but I would like to take on some of the stuff that was like more entertainment. So I would listen to these different Star Wars books. And over the last couple of years, I've listened to over 20 Star Wars books. Wow, okay. And yeah, you know, like 13-hour <laughs> books and stuff like that. And the lore goes deep, you know? Like, yeah, it, it goes way deep. So it's, it's been incredible. You know, it's been inspirational. It's been a lot of fun for me and kept me entertained and, and helped the work hours go by faster. And, um, and it also expanded my brain and, and my lexicon, you know, being able to hear these really unique vocabularies and all these different terms and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, cool. That's so interesting. And so I'm just had a lot of fun listening to all the Star Wars stuff. And, uh, you know, you know, I, as I was listening to these different things, I would tune into this Star Wars theory, you know, podcast on YouTube. And he would always talk about this artist that would be creating his shirts and his hats and different artwork animations for him. And he was a man named Venomous. And Venomous, uh, his real name's Eli Hyder. He's just this really cool dude he uh he had drawn some pictures with like hookahs and stuff like that in the star wars universe and i thought they were so cool i'm like oh rad this guy probably smokes so i reached out to him and i'm like hey man i noticed your art do you uh do you happen to to smoke and he's like yeah and i'm like oh dude i i grow a little bit and I would just be so stoked if I could get you some of my cannabis that I've grown and know that you were possibly under the influence, you know, while you're creating this art for the Star Wars world. And, you know, he puts out art for like Marvel and Lucasfilm and Star Wars and Topps trading cards. And so, you know, he's like, a, he's a real artist. And, I'm thinking, you know, this would be just so cool if he was, you know, smoking my stuff and, and creating this art. So I, I arranged plans to meet up with him up at, uh, up at Magic Mountain. And my daughter and I were on our way to Disneyland. 
And we stopped at this gas station and met him there. And I gave him this paper bag with like a pound of herb in it. (laughs) And he was super stoked. And he gave me some different art prints and some hand-drawn art, you know, and of Star Wars. And it was just really cool. I was just super grateful for the gifts. And I had no idea that I was going to do that branding at the time. But then as things progressed and, and I wanted to start doing the branding, then that became the natural go-to. It was like, here's something that I truly love with another thing that I truly love. And let me go ahead and mix the two of them. Yeah. And, you know, millions of people love Star Wars and millions of people love hash and cannabis, you know? So right. the two pair pretty dang well together. And I know that not everybody likes it, but many do. And so um, as it became time to create the label, I reached out to Venomous and asked him if he would uh, do that. And it's been a great collaboration since he's continued to make um, all the different art for like the hoodies and the lightsaber torch wraps, the timers, the lunch boxes, you know, uh, the dab mats, all these different things that we've done have come from his artwork. And then a big part of it is, is label my bud, putting them into print for us. Yeah, that's cool, man. So, like I said, I, I dig the artwork. Like I mentioned, not a Star Wars fan, but yeah, you and I know Cuban made a little appearance in one of your scenes. And so I think it's cool that you're like, like you said, taking something you love, mixing it with something else you love. But also the art is cool because you're you're mixing it with like yourself, like you're in the scenes and it's being done by obviously a guy who, like you said, is is like a real artist who who's actually made this stuff and uh, how you met was cool. And it's funny because your daughter always seems to be the glue between you and these uh, ambitious things like Ricky Williams and and Venomous. So. Uh, Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I love my kiddo so much. She, she's so special. Yeah. Yeah. And and doing that collab with, with Cuban, you know, it, it was such a blessing too. You know, he loves Star Wars and he's been called the Sift Lord for yeah, years yeah. now, well before him and I did anything together. And, you know, that's that's a great play on the Sith Lord. So it right. just it was a it was a natural fit for both of us to be out there in our Sith robes and, you know, linking with the Mando out at the market and giving him some of that 90U melt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, ride us out into the sunset with your your vision for the future. Yeah, yeah. So uh, looking forward, you know, there's there's this uh, transitional phase that's coming up and, and you could see it with like the decriminalization with cannabis in the U.S. and then the rescheduling with the United Nations. You're like, okay, it's ramping up, you know. Maybe not this president, but maybe this president um, will help it become nationally legalized. And then shortly after that, I imagine the next domino is going to fall with that international legalization. And so I have my eyes sort of set on, you know, those two different phases and I'm trying to ramp up for that. So, you know, uh, if everything goes smooth, we'll be able to move on to this uh, 
bigger property out here and um, we can build it in phases. And as things continue to progress, we can open up into national sales and then international sales. And I just think that that'd be so neat to be able to provide like this real, real clean, high quality craft product uh, across the globe. Like I could imagine people in Germany with it, people in Spain with it, people in Italy with it, and maybe even India and, and China. You, you never know how far it'll be able to go, but um, that's what I'm real hopeful for is to be able to get this product, you know, this high quality product that's made with love into everybody's hands across the world. So you know, hopefully everything works out and we'll be able to get these different licenses and, and provide for everyone like that. Yeah, that's very cool, man. And obviously I'm wishing you the best in all that. And yeah, I'd love to get more into the details of it, but I think we've chopped it up enough. Uh, so I'll end with some of the hard questions that I ask. If you had to pick three favorite hash makers, who would they be? Oh, well, it's going to be Aussie Cuban grower is right at the very top of the list. <laughs> and then uh, I'm going to have to say uh, Harry Palms, Bloom Seed Co., you know? And then, um, gosh, who's a third? It's so hard to say because there's so many people that are knocking it out of the park. You know, there, there's a ton of people who are doing it really good. So if you're not the third pick, don't take offense to it. But <laughs> I would definitely say, I would say probably, see, I haven't had a chance to even try like Pua or any of those guys. So, but I, you know, I would probably say Ken Wall, you know, I, I really love his energy and his spirit. Oh, there it is right there. The Pua. <laughs> yeah. Pua yeah. has energized the interview for, for me. <laughs> Oh, I loved hearing it. You know, he has such great spirit. You could just tell his attitude was so uplifting and he's like laughing the whole time. I could see his smile through the audio. You know, I could just, he has such a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, Camden's awesome guy, man, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, those are the three. <laughs> cool. Ken Wall was the last one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to meet him yet either, but you know, we give each other a little love on the IG and he just seems like a really good dude. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. And then the last question, Chris, if you could hear someone interviewed on the podcast that hasn't been, who would it be? Oh, shoot. You know, I, I think, I think I haven't met them yet either, but just seeing their work out there all the time, I think it'd probably be like Turtle Trees or Humboldt Organic Collective. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know both those guys. I've, I've actually had a little chance to try some of Turtle Trees uh, Animal Face, I think. And Humboldt Organic Collective is one that has been on my radar for years, but I just, yeah, I've never had a chance to actually try their gear, but from everybody I've ever heard, it's supposed to be pretty top-notch, so. West Coast Alchemy. Yeah, that he's been crushing it too, so they're, they're all on the list for sure, but cool, man. I appreciate your, your input on that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Chris, uh, 
again, I am so thankful. I likewise appreciate the support you're on the Patreon, which means a lot. And, you know, again, I, I just want to appreciate you not only taking the time to do this, but like confiding in me uh, to do this interview. And yeah. Yeah, man. Again, thank you for having me. I feel like I'm kind of like a smaller guy out there and just for you to even give me the opportunity to be on your show is, is just such a blessing. And I'm, I'm going to be forever grateful for this, this moment and this opportunity. So thank you again. And your show kicks so much ass. It's just so much fun. And so, you know, <laughs> Thanks, blessings and, and best wishes to, to everything that you do. I appreciate that, man. Um, may the force be with you. <laughs> and if you want to follow Chris on Instagram again, it's the real underscore. No, I got that wrong. It's the real cannabis underscore Chris or on his Etsy shop cannabis. Chris again, many thanks everybody. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. May the Terps be with you always. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the hashish. It. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.